Okay. You may fire when ready. From NeedCoffee.com, this is The Soundboard, episode 27. Uh, I'm Jan Tuffley. Coming up on this show, our big topic is going to be the uh, music on the television and uh, what happened to it. Uh, so we'll, we'll check on that. Um, but don't panic. Don't freak out. I know Valentine's Day is coming up, and uh, we, we will have our annual series of Valentine's Day or anti-Valentine's Day recommendations later in the program. Um, also, lots and lots of news and uh, words about people flipping things off. Uh, joining me on this program for uh, this edition of Soundboard, the usual group uh, today assembled in the heart-shaped box, which is kind of cramped. Uh, joining us, uh, host of KDH, KDHX's Juxtaposition. I'm going to get that plug right. Uh, and uh, film <laughs> critic and all-around uh, resident curmudgeon, uh, Mr. Rob Levy. Hello, sir. Hi. Hello. <laughs> and St. Louis is getting cold. Yes, that's okay. That's okay. It's winter. It's supposed to be. It's winter. Uh, also joining us as usual, uh, the uh, the head of this this whole enterprising thing that we're doing, I think, uh, Mr. Widget Walls. Hello, sir. Howdy. This box is is indeed cramped. I can't feel my legs. It is. Stop kicking me. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so uh, before we uh, before we jog through the news, gentlemen, um, I did come across a little something a um, couple of weeks ago. Actually, this was about two weeks ago. Uh, Disney. And their lovely sense of marketing fun uh, decided to release a, a T-shirt that paid homage to uh, Joy Division's uh, Unknown Pleasures cover. A um, couple of issues about that. Number one being it was, a Joy, it was based on a Joy Division T-shirt. And in their original text on the website, Disney admitted it such. Uh, second issue is um, neither Joy Division or Disney actually owned that image. Huh. It's based... <laughs> The original album cover to uh, Unknown Pleasures is based on a, I believe, a university astronomy catalog. Uh, it was a, it was an image of a wave sign, uh, which uh, Stephen Morris, the drummer of Joy Division and later New Order, uh, pitched as the album cover to uh, to Tony Wilson and uh, Peter Saville, who put that together. So technically, Disney appropriate and, and which you'll love this. It's not even public domain. The university owns the copyright. Well, wow, that's to the original image that the Joy Division cover is based on. Well, that's uh, that's weird because normally aren't university things usually public domain? Uh, I well, it was a published catalog, so it's more like a textbook. Oh, okay. So I believe it the 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 rights are a little sketchy, but the thing is, uh, neither Disney nor Joy Division originally owned the image to begin with. Nice. So, uh, so anyway, um, it lasted for all of four days. Um, and also the t-shirt was on sale in the theme parks, um, I think a week or two before it, the item actually went online. So, uh, I, I don't know if anybody actually, anybody actually, this actually shipped. Uh, I know it was available in the stores, but they pulled them from the stores. So I'm curious to see, A, if you're listening and you've got one of these, uh, let's talk, uh, B, <laughs> B, I find it interesting, the reaction from, the members of Joy Division, random members of Joy Division, Stephen Morris was apparently appalled. Peter Hook kind of took it as a bit of a uh, bit of a compliment, uh, and also mentioned, um, "I hope they won't mind terribly if any of us use Donald Duck on our T-shirts." Um, 
Well, what's hilarious is that I, I will point out that while um, the article that you sent does state that uh, it was going for $202 on eBay, yeah. you, you, of course, have the inevitable knockoff. I don't know. How, how do you do a counterfeit bootleg pirate Disney Joy Division T? That, I don't even know how to get that straight in my head, but they're already selling on eBay for uh 18.95 <laughs> you know you know what happens oh yeah so cafe, cafe press baby and, and 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 of course it looks you would probably not be able to to uh to tell the difference between this and a real one it it looks you really wouldn't yeah yeah so i love it i love I'm, I'm tempted to get one actually I actually do. I actually do want one, and and it was funny because I think Stephen Mor- what part of Stephen Morse's quote was, uh, "No true fan of Joy Division would even be interested in this shirt." The hell, dude! Every Joy Division fan would be interested in this T-shirt. It's an ironic. It's become some sort of um, some sort of statement on uh, appropriations. It really has, and it this this will go. Actually, this will go quite well with my um, uh, uh, Mickey Skull and Crossbones shirt that I got from Spain. So, <laughs> absolutely, Rob. What are you thinking about all this? Uh, well, first of all, I don't think any hipsters will be working at Disney anytime soon, and um, yeah, it's just weird. I mean, I read this, and then I know, uh, I know, which kind of alluded to this too. The last sentence I thought I'd ever hear in the same sentence <laughs> would be a Joy Division Disney shirt, you know. Um, and you would think that someone at Disney who handles their merchandising and their merchandising is, from what I understand, pretty rigorously over overseen, would kind of get the idea. Joy Vision, never heard of them. Let me look them up. Ooh, not a good idea. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, the the the, the okay, Disney Joy Division. Yeah. I honestly can that passes through my brain quite easily. Disney ripping off Joy Division. That's the part that I have a problem with. <laughs> well, I think. Well, I think. Well, one, it it brings a whole new level of interest to the uh, Minnie and Mickey relationship, which is going to be hilarious. <laughs> I'm surprised no one has put, you know, the old Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse cartoons online yet with Level Terrace apart as a background. I haven't seen any YouTube videos <laughs> yet. You know, I'm waiting for those. Um, but. I I think the thing is, you know, yeah, I, I'm kind of I'm not surprised that Disney sort of appropriated this because large companies have sort of been taking things from other other smaller pop cultures for a while and sort of adopting them. We've sort of gotten so used to it that no one ever says no. Hey, stop! Wait a minute. You know, that's the first thing. And then the other thing that I think that's interesting with this is that I don't think. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why you put Disney and Joy Division together. Other than, you know, we have a lot of cool young kids that go to our park. Let's try to, you know, make our image a little less, you know, wholesome or something. I don't know. It's just... <laughs> a little less wholesome. I don't know. I mean, it's, well, what other thing can you say about it? I mean, it's it's a freaking Joy Division cover. And, you know, they probably thought it was a cute graphic design layout. And it may have even been, you know, the first of something else they were going to do, you know. To try to do something cool, it's like oh, a whole series of album covers designed with the mouse, you know. But yeah, I don't know. When I think of Walt Disney, I do not think of you know pasty English guys that write atmospheric, moody, you know, goth rock. I just <laughs> well, now Rob, now I will say that there was a version of Fantasia that you never saw. 
you know, that actually would be awesome. A version of Fantasia where they just turn down all the music and it's all, you know, Joy Division records. I think you can do that with Fantasia 2000, actually. <laughs> you know, but you think, you think that they would have done, the other thing, you think you would, that they would have done their due diligence because most of the Joy Division cover art for the 12 inches in the albums are all photographs uh, of other things. Oh, yeah, or, you should have seen the rendition of the Closer cover. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, like, still, I think, is the only one that was specifically designed yeah. for a Joy Division record. Closer's got, like, a, an appropriated picture on it and things like that, you know. Um, so it's very weird. I just, I, you know, I just, it's one of those things that just, well, okay, now I believe everything, you know. Um, there's a lot of other cool T-shirt things they could have done to put in the mouse, and it's like, why Joy Division? You know, was this a pissed off employee on the way out? You know, with the girl with the dragon tattoo working that day? You know, what's going on? Um, oh, Jesus. Now, what's funny I, is... I have to say, though, whoever thought of that idea is pretty badass. And it may have been somebody that, like, lost their job and said, I'm going to screw them on the way out, you know? Um, that's possible. Now, what's hilarious is that immediately after this happened, a, a, a number of other parodies using the Joy Division cover have sprung up. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 fantastic. So I'm so, it I makes me happy. The only one I've seen. I haven't seen any of the other ones yet. So um I'm a little alarmed though that this cover is suddenly becoming like you know almost like portable graffiti art. You know, it's kind of weird. You know, because it's really great... cool portable graffiti art. People at work have been asking me questions ever since I put it up. Well but... the thing that's the thing that's interesting though is that like um a lot of that album cover artwork that Joy Division did is considered considered fairly seminal in terms of album covers and in terms of presentation and things like that. So you would think that um Well a somebody, lot of the factory stuff in general. Yeah, you know, a lot of the factory stuff in general, but you'd think that someone there would get some kind of an idea in their head that uh you know before they even proceeded. I know if I was gonna design a Mickey Mouse shirt and I was going to make it a Joy Division shirt, I would pretty much assume that it was copywritten or somehow um, this would not go over well. But, hey, more power to them, you know. The next thing is going to be the cover of Boys Don't Cry by The Cure, but Robert Smith will have mouse ears on, you know. that that That'll be next. But that's it's not like Robert Smith hasn't worn mouse ears before, so, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> With that in mind, I got <laughs> me to thinking... You know, and I seem to recall that Warners did this with, like, the cover of Born in the USA with, like, bugs or something. I, I seem to recall this. But I was thinking of what other corporations could appropriate whose other album covers. And I was kind of thinking, I'll throw the first one out. I was kind of thinking the uh, Pink Floyd Animals cover with Porky flying over the factory. Oh, you could do a number of uh, of different cartoon characters you, as as their um, Thanksgiving Day parade balloon selves floating over the Battersea Power Station. I think that would be that would be good. I think you're on the right track there. Sonic the Hedgehog flying over the factory. <laughs> yes, well, you could actually do the uh, the cover of Hotel California uh, with the um, with the Magic Kingdom castle uh, in the oh, background. Yeah. That would be a good one. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think well, get, Abbey Road was all Disney people crossing the street. Oh, I'm sure that's been done. Obvious. I'm sure yeah. that's Actually, been done. There I, is there is quite a famous Muppet T-shirt poster with that. With, yeah, with, like the Doctor Teeth's band crossing the road. I, I'd actually like to see the uh, the Velvet Underground album, the one with the banana. 
Um, except it's uh, it's actually flaming carrot instead. I think that would be a good one. (laughs) And and double points for obscurity. Way to go, Edge! Whoa, whoa, whoa! I I I contend that Bob Burden is not obscure, my friend. (laughs) No, no, I'm just thinking flaming carrot. As as far well, as well, we all thought Joy Division was kind of obscure until the uh, freaking Mickey Mouse shirt. Okay, um, I'm trying. I'm trying to. Okay, sadly, because I don't have a lot of cover art in my iTunes. Here's what I'm doing mentally. I'm flipping through my CD collection back when I had a CD collection that I flipped through uh, before I before I ripped it all. And wow. I'm thinking, what if you had uh, Jane's Addiction? Nothing shocking, but. Instead of the the like conjoined weird twins, it was Tweedledee and Tweedledum from Disney's Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> I think Tim Burton actually used that. Uh, I I think so. <laughs> I, I that explains a lot actually. <laughs> so uh, any any other any other stray album cover ideas? I will think of all of them after <laughs> the podcast probably. Ah. Um, um, users, users at home, home users, if you have a couple of ideas for this, please feel free to throw it in the comments. It should be, it should make for a fun discussion. You know, actually, you could do Baby Huey in the pool from the Nevermind album cover. Uh, oh, what's, oh, you know oh. what? You've just reminded me. This just, as I'm, again, as I'm flipping through my head, um, I actually own a, a vinyl figure. This is not the first time Disney's done this. I own the vinyl figure. Of, oh, the Johnny Cash thing? No, of Mickey Mouse doing the uh, uh, the Clash London Calling cover. Oh, that's what that is. Okay. Yes. Same one. Yeah. Again, it was one of those things where it's it's a company out of Japan that does the most amazing uh, What's Disney that, kid v- robot. No, no, no. I mean, it's oh. Kid Robot. I I think Kid Robot is domestic. I think they yeah. are. Okay. But this is this is this is only in Japan. Sold only in Japan. They have the license, and they do awesome vinyl figures. And it was one of those things where I would see them, and I would go, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. That's really cool. That's cool. Oh, shit, they did the Clash. Fuck, I got to buy this now. Oh, shit. It is. It is Mickey smashing the guitar. So uh, this is not the first time they have gone to uh, album covers, as it and turns which, out. You know what the funny thing about that is? What's that? The Clash London Calling cover uh, is actually an appropriation of an Elvis Presley cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yep. That explains why uh, why you thought it was uh, well, well, no, you thought it was Johnny Cash. Yeah, <clears throat> but uh, connections. Next time on the soundboard. Um, so now going to news. <laughs> oh no! Now we're going to news, people. Um, apparently, uh, some uh, politicians have uh, gone a little wacky with the uh, use of music yet again. And this comes up every election time, guaranteed. (laughs) Every election time. And it's both sides of the fence. So it's not like one ideology or the other. But let's face it, when Republicans start grabbing songs, people get a little pissed. Um, But um, this time, this one in question, uh, Newt Gingrich uh, has apparently been using the uh, song Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. For his uh for use in his campaign and apparently in some campaign videos, and uh, the band uh, I think uh, or at least Frankie Sullivan, not the entire band, although maybe they do, but uh, Frankie Sullivan, who actually wrote the song, is uh, is is suing for the uh, Newt Gingrich campaign to discontinue the use of this song on the uh, on the campaign trail, 
which is which is interesting. Uh, who was it? Who was it that uh, Michelle asked Michelle Bachman to stop using their song? A fish, bo- fish bone. Oh no, sorry, that was no, wrong. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was sorry. <laughs> God, that made me so happy. <laughs> But uh, but there's been a number of artists. This crops up every every election. yeah every election cycle. Now now toughly am I and I I think I read this a few days back and I have a memento head so I can't form new memories. Um, am I remembering correctly in that not only is the guy suing but he's also suing because he is well not because but he just so happens to be like going out on tour later this year as well. Uh, Do well, I remember Survivor, that correctly? I believe Survivor is releasing a new album. Ah, there you go. But uh, but it's a fairly common practice when these, especially when the politicians use it, which, again, both sides of the fence have done this. So this is not just a Republican thing. Um, but um, but it, it's been become a fairly common practice when this happens that uh, bands uh, try to get an injunction to uh, at least keep their song from being used. Yeah, because somebody was using Born to Run on the last campaign and Springsteen was pissed off. Was that Carrie? Who was that? I can't no, remember. I, was, I don't pay. I I don't keep up. No, uh, it was. Um, but I remember that. I, it might have been McCain. I, I believe. It no, was. yeah, I think you're right. It was McCain. It was, Sorry, it yeah. was it was it was McCain and uh, what's her name? <laughs> oh yeah, what's her name? Yeah. Yeah, what's her name? Yeah. No, I don't. But but, uh, but I I I seem to recall the most at least of recent the most famous appropriation completely wrong appropriation of a song by a candidate it was actually Springsteen. It was Reagan who used Born in the USA. Yeah. Uh, for his reelection campaign. And uh, I believe the official response from, from Bruce was actually at a concert going, did he even listen to the album? We're complaining about him. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, uh, those were simpler times, however. So when the uh, the president uh, the president Reagan reelection campaign got wind of that that Springsteen was making a point of bringing this up at every tour stop, um, they promptly withdraw withdrew the song, and no 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 lawsuits were fired. No 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 lawyers were involved or harmed in the process of the born in the USA situation. Half of me says, you know, wow, Survivor, what better advertising do you have? People remember your song in a non-wrestling context. <laughs> but then the other half of me totally, totally remember, totally agrees that, like, you know, you don't want your song to be attributed to something you don't necessarily believe in. Like, if this had been the World Wildlife Federation or something, they might have been fine with it. I don't know. But um you have to think that somebody somewhere at this point, after all these campaigns having this issue, would think about calling up the person saying, can I use your song? <laughs> just... Well, and I, th- I think another one is someone used ROCK in the USA, and I think that was another one that had an issue. I think Melanchan. that was Centorum, actually. But um, yeah, it's just it's just bizarre. I mean, first of all, I can't imagine Newt Gingrich rocking out the Survivor. I I just can't, you know. A- actually, um, but and and actually, more more than that, I think probably he's got a few Loverboy records in his collection too. Actually, I I can um <clears throat> I can picture Newt Gingrich rocking out. To a Disney cover version of Joy Division. Don't She's lost control. Bed. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's it's just I, I it's just also it's the practical 
the practical reason, obviously, is that it sets a president well if if can if candidates if, if presidential candidates can use songs in YouTube videos, why can't I? So yeah. so there's also the practical end of it too, which is you know if if we let the one party get away with it, then we have to actually let everyone get away with it, well, and that's that's what the that's what some recent legislation was actually about. Well, I remember when. Uh, they use a beautiful day for the last election run. And I remember someone asking Bono if he had a problem with a, a campaign using it. And he said, well, they called up the office. They, they sort of, um, asked if they could use it. We went online and researched what they were about. They sent us a copy of all the commercials they were going to use it on. And then we signed off on it, you know? So yeah. it seems like that it's a go. I think the same thing happened with Fleetwood Mac. Too. Actually, uh, if I recall correctly, Fleetwood Mac was not asked when Clinton used the song. Okay, I wasn't sure. Yeah, but you uh, know, they in that case, asked, the only time they were approached with it was after Clinton got elected, and Clinton wanted uh, Mac to play his uh, his inauguration ball. But to be perfectly fair, you know that record sold them an awful lot of records. Yeah, and you know? and and several several reunion tours later. Yeah. So, so that's what's going on, and I'm sure because we we're only we're not even. That's the only songs I've heard on a campaign trail. I haven't, I haven't really been hearing of anything else yet, but it, it, oh, it's only going to get more interesting. Yeah. Oh, we're not even into the important part of the election cycle. So, uh, so uh, you know, we'll probably hear some more about this. Well, we'll just stay in people's court for a while. Uh, <laughs> So a really, really interesting court case popped up, and this story comes from Ars Technica, and it's about a website called Redigi, and apparently Capitol Records or Sony or whoever owns them now, I'm not really sure who at this point, um, has uh, sued to prevent the sale of used music files uh, from Capitol Artists. Now, I should explain a little bit about what the hell exactly Redigi is. Redigi is apparently connected to an iTunes account, and basically people can sell their used um, iTunes files uh, online on some sort of secure website. So basically what happens is they upload the stuff online. It has, of course, the iTunes DRM on it, which is attached to their account. Somebody buys it. And then uh, the license transfers somehow, and uh, then the uh, then the user no longer then the user who sold it no longer has access to it or can re-download it from the iTunes store. If I understand this correctly, yeah, it sounds like uh, reading the the article. It sounds like what they're doing is you by offering it up for sale, transfer the license to. Uh, if like like an escrow account type of yeah. thing that holds it to they hold it and then they pass it to whoever buys it from you, and then once you've pass once you've sold it, then yeah. you can't access it anymore. Now, um, I did a little check of Redigi's website, and I'm reading the About Us page, and they swear this they swear actually four or five times this is completely legal. It's fine. You can do that. It's okay. It's just like selling UCDs or your used Cadillac. However, um, and I got to thinking about this, it may be, you know, that same theory, but 
if you actually look up Apple's EULA for iTunes. That's where I was going to head. Go ahead. <laughs> if you actually look up Apple's EULA for iTunes under, and I believe this is the second paragraph, Wedge. Uh, I, I, I have not read the entire uh, Leo Tolstoy-sized EULA, but okay. I was... I, I figured it was in there somewhere, but go okay. ahead, please. It's paragraph number two. It's scope of license letter under the letter A. That's <laughs> the second paragraph. Well, that's how uh, lazy I am. Too long, didn't read. Well, apparently, Retigi didn't read it either, because <laughs> apparently uh, it says explicitly, uh, you may not rent, lease, lend, sell, redistribute, or sublicense the licensed application, meaning iTunes, apps, files from iTunes. So really, what what it sounds like needs to happen, Tuffley, so is that Apple needs to sue. Exactly, the wrong people are suing them. Not not that I am promoting litigation. Let me be the first oh, to no, say that. But not. but I'm just saying, uh, what the hell, Capital? Uh, it's not your fight. <laughs> that that was the thing that struck me, and I'm sitting there looking at this, going, "That's a really cool idea." And Unless then, it's a publishing issue for them. Yeah. Well, well, it's it's the same setup as. If you from a, from a from a just a conceptual perspective, it is actually the same thing as UCDs. It is. Mm-hmm. However, because Apple has a specific license, when you go into iTunes and every time you upgrade iTunes, you have to click that you read it when yep. nobody ever does. Mm-hmm. That it explicitly says you can't sell any of this. So it's a great idea in concept. Um, and I'm sure you could do it with stuff that is non-DRM. I have not looked at Amazon's EULA or anybody else's EULA, but I'm pretty sure Amazon's is pretty much the same way. We grant you a limited license, but you can't sell it. Um, but it, on paper, it sounds like a great idea um, because, you know, you've we've all done this and we've done this with you CDs. You've done this where, you know, that that particular CD that you bought in 1994 because the band was cool, Candlebox. Um, you sell it. Oh, wow. Wow. Memories. Wow. Candlebox. Nope. Yes. Sad admission. Please yeah, note that. Yes. Yeah. I only like the song because I thought the lyrics were different. And then when I was pissed that they weren't, I rewrote them. But anyway, go on. I thought the opening for, for Far Away was just the best riff ever. And then he started singing. Um, I don't know you people. Uh, let's clock it. We managed to get disavowed in only what twenty eight minutes this time, right. Tuffley. Is, right. is that a new record, or did, have we done it faster? I think we've done it faster than that. Shit, but, uh, we'll work harder next episode. I think we've done it from introductions. Okay, good. But uh, <laughs> but but anyway, it basically UCD market basically became the middle ground for bootleggers and people who are trying to get rid of their embarrassing album purchases. And I think on paper we should still be allowed to do that in the digital age. What say you? Yes. Well, uh, like you said, on paper, yes, because I, I the the article that you had sent um, uh, talks about what is it? First sale, I think, is what they call the, um, yeah, it's the right of first sale, which is the loophole that you get around with uh, you, selling UCDs. Yeah, and and see that makes sense to me because there is nothing uh, there. For, first of all. Let, let's go ahead and assume that if there had been some kind of insane – if if albums had come around uh, after used CD stores somehow, we can be certain that the recording industry would have had some kind of EULA on their CDs 
like when you open software, by breaking this seal, you confirm that we own your left kidney or whatever the fuck. All right, because no well, one reads it. Which, if you remember, with Sony a few years back with the root kits, they actually did. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, but exactly. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking more along the lines of just opening it like you do with Microsoft yeah. or which, oh, is, yeah. which is annoying. But. Uh, oh, God, I have to install the Faith No More records again. I just. <laughs> what? They're upgrading them. What? Um, that's, they're not remastering. They're upgrading them. Um, no, but I, I think that uh, you would have a problem with that. Um, but the first sale thing makes total sense for me. Books, movies, even CDs where you could, in theory, and I'm sure some people do this, I myself do not, um, if you own a CD, rip it and then turn around and sell it used. I don't do that because, A, that just, A, and the reason I don't do that is because I'm too paranoid because I'm fairly certain at some point my hard drive will die and I'll still want the damn music. That's the main <laughs> reason. Um, but my thing is that, I mean, if if you're entering into a contract with uh, iTunes, by using iTunes, and you agree to that EULA that says, I'm not going to do this, then you shouldn't do that. You should not be allowed to do that because that's the contract you signed up for. Now, if you purchase something through, say, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something that was not be iTunes or Amazon. Let's say SoundCloud. I don't know. Yeah. Or Bandcamp or something. Bandcamp right? is a better example. Oh, okay, Bandcamp. I don't, I don't know about their EULA. Okay, you know what? If they don't have anything forbidding it, then yes, you're absolutely right. You should be able to uh to do that. Because you're you're right in that on paper, it's the same as like um what is it? Like I think it's swap a CD. I think they have a version of that. Swap a DVD where you can literally trade, yeah. you know, credits for CDs and stuff like that. So that makes sense to me. But as long as the contract doesn't forbid it, I'm totally on board with that. But if you did buy it through a service that had that as part of its contract, then that's part of the contract. So, well, and, and then I thought about it, and the other thing that I find, you know, slightly possibly icky about this, mm. uh, aside from the violating Apple's EULA, yeah, um, is the fact that to do this, you actually do have to give up your iTunes, you know, information, your iTunes account, so it can, you know, find your music and de-license it to you to transfer it to someone else. Yeah. That is true. Um, that but, sounds kind of hokey to me. Well, yeah. it, it could. I mean, it could. Uh, and and we have seen so many instances of people getting hacked and their information being stolen. Um, Especially since for most people, your credit card is attached to that. Yes, it is. So, I mean, that that is a concern. I mean, that's why there's, there's only certain plugins I will use with browsers. Yeah. I mean, how... Why does like you know why does the Amazon plugin for Chrome need to know what other websites I'm visiting? Why? It doesn't. Go to hell. Um or Facebook apps, you know, Facebook even when you're not running Facebook can be watching Facebook as if you were uh, using Facebook. What? Why does it need to do that? All I want to do is see someone's calendar. Go to hell. So That's why that's why you use Seasmic. Why? What? What? Uh, that's why you use Seismic or like a third party. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know exactly. But I mean, Facebook app, so you you get around some of that. Yes, but but all of that to say, yeah, that that is a very viable concern. Is that what is what is Redigi's policy 
about their security and safety for your stuff. Yeah. Um, but I mean, and I think that's going to be a problem, not just in music, but elsewhere, as so many people don't look at what permissions yeah. they're giving Facebook apps and plugins and browsers and whatever else. Um, the PlayStation Network. Yeah. You know, so, but no, that's, that, that is a valid point. It is, it is a, so, so maybe the summary is, and, and toughly tell me if you agree with this is on paper. Yes, it makes total sense. Does it make sense in, in practicality, even Eula aside? Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. It, 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 it sounds a bit dodgy to me. And uh, and Apple, seriously, when you get done suing Samsung, um, please, I think there's one you might be able to win. Ace in the hole, people. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Back up. Someone's suing Samsung? That's great. Tell me about this. <laughs> I fucking hate Samsung. Uh, <laughs> Who's going to destroy Samsung? That's, in fact, another show. It's shit. But there you go, people. Actual consumer advice from from a Need Coffee podcast. There you go. Yeah. Here's my consumer advice. Don't buy anything with the name Samsung on it. And do research to make sure that what you've bought isn't Samsung under a pseudonym. That's why my DVD burner stopped working. Why? Because it was created by Samsung. They are shit. Anyway, that's, I'm sorry. That's great because we're sponsored by Spotify, which... Um... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll I'll stop ranting now. Please, Tuffley. Oh, that's fine. Take, wow. take, I don't have to do anything. You're doing all the work take, for me. Take the wheel again, Tuffley, please. This is fantastic. Take it away um, from me. <laughs> so, while you're in that mood, Widge, um, there are only two best song Oscar nods this year. What's up with that? Oh, God. All right, so. The Oscars, as if they possibly couldn't get any more stupid and irrelevant into how they're handling their stuff. It's not bad enough, but because first of all, let's back up a second. They've changed how their nominations and votes get counted. So that's why, even though there are 10 potential slots for Best Picture, there's only nine. Because I, like probably anyone else with a brain, was sitting there going, surely there was a 10th film you could have slotted in there. And we could toss around what it could have been, whether it was Dragon Tattoo or whatever, uh, you know, that was going to make it. But they two. Hey, oh God! You know what? With ten slots, I would not be surprised in the least. Um, but no, they've got some sort of counting thing, which says that you have to have a certain amount of votes. But basically, I I posted to Twitter about the best picture thing. It's this incredibly strange quantum physics type of Schrodinger's cat <laughs> type of thing that I got to like step four, and I was hemorrhaging because I had no idea what the fuck it was about. So I'm sure best song is something like that because basically you had a, a slew of songs that were eligible, okay? And then the way the nominations are counted, nobody had the critical mass to get up above the threshold of like six, like between six and ten, you have to have 8.25 to get in or something like that. And only two songs made the cut. Now, I there have been some years when there are only two songs. There have been. It's rare, but it happens. This is not that year. So, Academy, your nomination system, you said, you know what? It's it's like literally they had a committee meeting and went, we haven't made this as fucked up as it can possibly be yet. I want a subcommittee to fuck this up even worse. And we even had a, a, a movie with a Randy Newman song in it. 
Now, wait, how did how did that happen, Rob? I don't know. How did Is that happen? Song for Cars too. Uh, how how does Randy Newman not get nominated? I don't he, know. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm I think he has something in Cars, but I could be wrong. Well, um, well, if you go by your your usual Oscar theory, is you know they've already given it to him at least twice. So no, but that doesn't mean you can't put him in. I mean, well, you no, have to look at the but, movies that came out this year that had songs in them. I mean, even something had to have a musical in it or something. I mean, right. It had to have, hang on, hang on. I'm looking at the okay. So here even is if you do even if you do a film like Gainsbourg, which was a, an independent film with the music of Serge Gainsbourg, they had somebody singing those songs. You know, even if you had. um God, I'm trying to figure out what they what, what what they could have used. I mean, there's a lot of things that had. Didn't they sort of tweak the rule on best song? Uh, I think after the Beatles won something, because that makes that no, it has to be it has to be original. It has to be made originally for the film and not just a yeah. byproduct of it. Well, there's a there, and how many hip hop songs are made for films this year? I mean, we've already established that that can win. Because uh Three Six Mafia now now has more Academy Awards than Peter O'Toole. But um <laughs> Alright, so here I I actually I pulled up the short list. So here's what we got. You've got uh Lay Your Head Down uh, I'm just gonna do the high points. Lay Your Head Down from Albert Knobs, which was the Sinead O'Connor song, right? There's a Captain America song. I didn't even know it existed, okay? There was a Cars 2 song. I don't think it was Randy Newman. I'm not seeing his name anywhere, but I could be okay. wrong. This is a very, very quick uh, search here. Um, uh, despite what you might think of the film or whatever, Happy Feet 2 had two songs in it, okay. and normally animated films do it. The Help had a song, which apparently well, didn't that, make it. The Happy Feet thing, was that Prince again? I have no idea. Because I Prince got nominated for a Globe for the first one, right? I don't. Yeah. I don't even know. I don't pay that much attention to the Globes. I'm afraid. Um, so, but anyway, the Help had a song. Hugo had a song. Um, holy God, Machine Gun Preacher had a song. Um, the Muppets <laughs> had the Muppets had two other songs. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, Rio had three songs, of which one made it. Uh, and that's well. And Winnie the Pooh had two songs. But that is from a, from a, uh, what do they say? What was it, 29 or something? If I got the, anyway. It was like 39 different 39, songs. yes, yeah, thank you. 39, 39, um, that made it to the short list. And, yes, yeah, so here you go. Uh, here are the people. From Nomeo and Juliet, Lady Gaga and Elton John, that was their song. The Machine Gun Preacher song was Chris Cornell. Um, the Help song was Mary J. Blige. Um, uh, it's like the national is on the short list. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere. Uh, let's see. Oh, yes. Um, uh, from Win Win, it looks like. Yeah. So, but anyway, so but, uh, the point being is that it's not like these were obscure songs from obscure films. Surely you could have at least gotten four nominations out of that if you had had a decent thing. Did someone just forget to like fill out the rest of the form and they just no, don't no, want to admit it? it did, basically, you had two songs make it, so 37 songs between them split the nominations to the point where none of the rest of these scored above the minimum threshold available that you have to hit to be nominated. That's right, what it was. I'm sorry. I know the Oscars have wrestled with how to get music into their programs or whatever. I know that's been an issue for years. 
But really, if you're going to nominate 10 films, find me. It's the same thing with like animated films. If you're going to find me, you know, 10 films for best picture, find me five songs. Well, you know, it's not like they have to hunt that long. They don't have to hunt that far. Uh, I mean, how many of these, I mean, Jesus, how many soundtracks is Disney pumping out that they have songs on them to sell them? You know, I mean, really? Well, I think the other issue is, and I think which kind of tapped at it, I mean, from, from the, from the standpoint of the televised awards, this category has been a, an issue for, for, for the Academy for years. Well, you don't need to play the songs. That's fine. Don't play the songs. Treat it like cinematography. You don't show me what the cinematography looks like when you give me cinematographer. That's true. But, you know, I, I seem to recall this started back, what was it, uh, Bjork had the song that was six minutes long that was nominated, yeah. and yeah. they cut it, and she threatened not to not to perform if they were going to cut it, and they, they, there was, a, there was a, there was a meeting of the minds, and there was a compromise, so they still cut it, and she, uh, she, she, she kind of grudgingly went out and did it, um, yeah. and then I, mean, I seem I to recall, not wanting... okay. I seem to recall, uh, Peter Gabriel. Uh, yeah. Actually, refusing to perform, actually did did not was a no show, uh, because Disney was going to cut his song, and uh, the Oscars were going to cut the Oscar cast was going to cut cut the performance. Right, and that was well, for that was the one he was nominated for for Wally. Did he win that one or did he not? No. I don't, okay. Uh, no, I think he did. Lo- did he lose to Newman? I mean, you don't even have to play the songs. That's fine. Just. Well, my thing is, there's, I understand that they're trying to go for entertainment value because they want people to actually watch because they're actually selling ad space on the Oscars. Okay. That makes sense to me, but you don't have to, they don't have to play all five songs in their entirety. I would almost be more interested to see a version of the, um, uh, you know, bring out, bring out CeeLo Green and bring out a bunch of other people and have them all just build into this crazed medley of best song nominees. They um, actually did that one year. They did. They did do that one year. I don't remember the year, but I know what you're talking about, Tuffley. And that was fun because it had energy. That, uh, oh, that was the thing when um, when uh, 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 Slumdog was nominated. Because yes. they, did the medley, they did the medley that was built around the one Slumdog song at the beginning and the one Slumdog song at the end. And one of them was the one that uh MIA was supposed to do something on and she was pre- she was actually going into labor and couldn't perform so they brought out somebody else but it was bookended by the two slumdog songs there I you go that. here's here's your solution you get you get DJ Earworm to come in and do a mashup of all five songs he's done 25 he could do it in his fucking sleep and then the people when they're supposed to sing they basically sing their stuff live and and you bring in like whatever musicians you need and make it this all-star crazed musical thing. And you can't tell me that even if people don't tune in, that wouldn't be a YouTube sensation from here to next week. That would be fucking great. You can't tell me. So, but then again, my rates are very cheap and that's why the Oscars won't hire me. <laughs> well, they almost hired Or them just, you know, they'll hire just about video, Do it as a video montage with the songs in them. You know, I mean, but 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 it has to be but it has to be a uh, a juxtaposition kind of like no no pun intended Rob a juxtaposition yeah. of uh of like you were talking about with Mickey and Minnie and Lovell's Terrace Apart it has to be a song yeah. put against something completely incongruous that really drives the point home or not yeah 
I mean, I just can't believe they can't find five songs. That's awesome. No, no, no. no. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it. It's they've proven that they can find thirty-nine songs. It's just that their fucked-up type of uh, their fucked-up nomination system has has kept them from actually sharing them with everyone else. So it's ridiculous. Speaking of incongruities, moving on. Yes. Uh, what would you say? The uh, the 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 app called SoundHound. Are you familiar with this thing for your phone? I am not. Please, uh, please tell me that. Uh, here's what I would want an app called SoundHound to actually be: is that I could go up to Hell Puppy Cora, my dog, and it would be a version of like Shazam, where when she's barking, it would actually determine the song that was closest to what she was barking. Okay. Well, SoundHound is actually almost exactly like Shazam, which so you're very close. Yeah, but my idea is cooler. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, aha, uh-huh, but what would you say was Soundhound's most identified song of this past year, being 2011? Fuck Any you. guesses? You're, you're saying fuck you, CeeLo Green? Yeah. Okay. What are you going with, Wedge? Oh, God. Um. Well, I'm thinking about it this way, that it's it's... You, if you know the song, like it's it's kind of hard not to know what the song's "fuck you" is called because the refrain is "fuck you." So that's you don't really need an app to figure that out. Oh God! You know what? I'm thinking it's something Muzak because you would be you would be trying to what the hell is the name of that song? That's how I am with Muzak. Um, so my guess would almost be something insane like "Girl from Ipanema" or something. And this is part of the fun because I didn't put this into the agenda, so you guys really don't know what it is. I know, you didn't. All I saw was, in fact, what's hilarious was, just for our dear listeners at home, the way Tuffley had the email, it said, and the most uh, searched for Soundhound song was dot, 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 and below that, odds and ends. And what Tuffley meant was, the what's coming up next are odds and ends, the links that I'm giving you. But I'm sitting there going, odds and ends? I haven't heard of this song. Did you start searching for it? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> okay. Then my evil plan worked. Damn you! That's all right. All right, so we, you got our guesses, Tuffley. What what was your guess, or did you have a chance to have a guess before you knew? I, I, I didn't have a guess because I already knew the answer, so right. I, I could guess. All right, but you were it? both wrong. Oh, yeah, I um, figured. Uh, so the Soundhound most identified song of 2011 is, drumroll please, uh, Pumped Up Kicks from uh, Foster the People. Oh, that makes sense. God, that was going to be my first guess. I should have guessed Foster the People. <laughs> but but uh, you know what? After I listened to that album, I really tried to put it out of my brain. So, And most people did, of course, which is why they needed Soundhound to remind them what the hell that song was. Nice. What what was that? Wait, no, I just heard that again. And everyone had memento about Foster the People, so it's Okay. <laughs> So there was a singularity, and at one point, which everyone felt the same way you did. Oh, God, I feel sorry for the world. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, so, uh, moving on, uh, we've got a few festivals to talk about here real quick. Uh, Sasquatch, which happens uh, happens in Washington. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's going down May 25th uh, through May 28th. Uh, the lineup uh, includes uh, Jack White and Beck and... Bonifer and I Pretty Lights. I think it's the best of all the festival lineups I've seen so far. Yeah, it looks like. Uh, Pretty Lights, Tenacious D, uh, The Shins, Girl Talk, uh, The Roots. Nero. Yeah, Nero's going to be there. Uh, Silver Sun Pickups, Metric, Joy Formidable. St. Vincent, Little Dragon. Saint Vincent, Little Dragon. 
uh, Senegal, uh, Subtract is going to be there, uh, Tuneyards, uh, Bi- Blind Pilot, uh, Mark Landigan Band, which I really love that new album. Um, oh, you got and, you got Fun, which came from the ashes of the format. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just all sorts of bands. And it is, I, Rob, I'll agree with you. It is the best lineup I've seen so far. My God, is, is, is this festival six days long? This this page keeps scrolling. No, it's just a lot of bands. God uh, damn! I, I, they a, have like they put a picture of every band up too, which I think is yeah. kind of cool. I know. Are they that are, are they each playing for ten minutes? What the fuck? I don't know, but hopefully they won't invite CeeLo because he complains about that sort of thing. Um, well, the thing that's interesting about it is that first of all, it's in the gorge, which is this sort of natural valley in Washington. It is actually really gorgeous. And well, it's it's kind of like Red Rocks. It's amazing. It? As far as a space, it's kind of like yeah. Red Rocks. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the thing that they do where they have a um a bus for people that are disabled or just if you're tired, they have a they have a, a bus that'll take you to the different parts of the festival. So like if you're coming from parking and you want to go to the festival and let's say you have a wheelchair or you're with someone that has, you know, uh that hurt their foot or something and they have like a, a cane or something, they they make accommodations to get them to the show. And then if you buy a four day pass, you can come and go as you want. So that's kind of cool. Have you been to this festival before, Rob? No, I tend not to do them, but I, I was reading over the website in preparation for this. In earnest, oh, and I just, okay. It just looked like, I mean, I was, when I, whenever I look at a festival lineup, I start thinking of all the things I don't want to have to deal with and see how they solve them, right? And the, big, the first big issue that I have with festivals is that, yeah, I want to see the bands, but at some point I want to get away from all these people because that many people all the time is just, first, it's sensory overload. Second, you know, it's basically the douche apocalypse. And then the other thing you want to do is you just sort of want to, you know, decompress a little bit. And the festivals where they have the passes that you can buy and you can go off site and come and go, that's great because, you know what, if if someone gets heat exhaustion or someone wants to take a shower or if you just have seven hours of bands you don't want to see, it's nice that you can leave, go back to your hotel and come back. I think that's awesome, you know. Um because the one the one problem you have at, at a festival is that even with as many bands as these guys have, at some point you're not going to want to see. There's going to be something that you don't want to see that you're going to have to sit oh, yeah. through. And that to me, I'd rather just be able to go do something else, you know, yeah. um, and get away. You know, plus I don't want to camp at night with like fifty thousand friggin' people in Washington. Good God, you know. Yeah. Um, not that there's anything wrong with Washington. It's a beautiful state. I just don't want to. I mean, it's the same thing with Coachella. I don't really want to have to camp out, you know. Um, there comes a time when you like, you know, there's something nice about being able to physically leave at the end of the day, change clothes, come back, you know, get the mud off, all of that, you know. Yeah. Um, and this sort of answers all the little nagging things that annoy me about a festival. And the other thing I do like is that this early, when is it? May already? It's going to be, yeah, May. Yeah, it's they already have a rough weekend. Yeah, they already have a rough schedule of what everybody's playing, of yeah. what everybody's playing, which is nice. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like, which so, is yeah, great well, because if I want to buy it, if I want to buy a pass, like like the problem with Coachella, you buy the pass now when you don't necessarily know what day Pulp is playing or whatever. Not not completely. They'll well, tell you what days they volcano, are. Volcano. So several bands from England maybe uh, may not be showing up if there's another volcano. Yeah. Because I remember I mean, that happened last year. Yeah. But the thing is, they'll tell you what day they're playing, but they don't tell you the time. So this is kind of nice because you'll be able to sort of plan your days around, you know? 
And um, it also gives me enough time to know, oh, okay, Nero is playing at this point. Um, St. Vincent's playing at this point. I don't know who the band is in between them. Let me go listen to them and see if I want to check them out. You know, there's enough time between now and May that you can sort of discover the bands and, you know, and do that. And then you'll still go to the festival and hear some band you like that you didn't think you'd like. So it doesn't ruin the experience, but it just looks like it's really well organized. I just want to see if they're going to have Nero and Girl Talk playing after one another. First of all, when you use the word play with Girl Talk, it doesn't really count. I have a laptop. That counts. Yeah. But I, I would I would argue, though, that Nero actually constructs the whole songs for like three or four minute songs. Oh, and yeah. It's not the hyperventilation that you get with a girl talk. So. Yeah. Girl talk is just basically <clears throat> like DJ Earworm done wrong. It, it, it literally is like, let me see how many songs I can cram into 60 minutes um, yeah. with no rhyme or reason and no actual trying to make them make sense in any kind of narrative whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, which is just kind of like, I can't listen to it. It's just, it's, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I, you know, I saw Girl Talk live before I heard the record and it was, it, it was a little, it's still a little much, but the Neo record, you know, it's clever. He's using samples. He's distorting them. He's playing with them a little bit. You know, it's a little more interesting. But yeah, Rob, I got to agree with you though. That, 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 uh, that Sasquatch lineup is, is really, really deep. Well done there, folks. And it also proves you don't need big headliners. Well, funny you should mention that. I mean, they've uh, got Bonavir, and they've got—I mean, they've got some some pretty big heavy hitters. Well, they, but they went for Jack White and Beck, and I mean, they—they they, they got a decent array. No, I mean, but I mean, but when you consider, you know, Jack White and and Beck, yeah, those are big, you know, big headliners. But it's not when you put it up against Coachella where every night they make they want to make the final band like a big event, you know. It's yeah. sort of like yeah. we're gonna spread it out and make everything <laughs> solid rather than just spend four hours where we just beat you over the head with like, oh it's the Beastie Boys, oh it's the Chili Peppers, oh it's James Addiction, oh look it's nine inch nails, you know. Although um, although this begs the question, um, since I see Beck on the lineup, it, 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 which is going to be a question for another time really is Beck has an album coming out then. Yeah. So, so that's good. We'll, we'll talk about that some more on, on a future program, probably. Uh, moving on. And speaking of, uh, big, big headliners, um, Metallica has decided to do their own festival. I know you're shocked. Um, my it, guess is Lou Reed will not be invited. I, no, that's what I was going to say. Lou Reed isn't invited. Although, guess who is? Um, uh, Best Coast, which is interesting because, uh, Bethany, uh, Bethany, uh, Happened to uh, tweet about uh, her 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 huge disdain for uh, for Lulu, and 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 they managed to get booked anyway. Um, but uh, it's it's called the Orion Music and More Fest. So apparently there's going to be music and some comedy and stuff. And I believe the comedy is going to be Lars trying to speak to the crowd without being a douche. But um, just guessing. Um, but. Uh, the uh, the lineup has uh, has Metallica headlining, of course, and they're playing they're playing uh, I believe the Black Album and uh, Ride the Lightning uh, on on one night. So they're doing two albums on different nights. And uh, besides Metallica uh, and Best Coast, uh, the lineup's Modest Mouse, Hot Snakes, uh, Titus Androgynous, Fucked Up, uh, A Place to Bury Strangers, Arctic Mo- Arctic Monkeys. What? Why? Um. <laughs> What about the Arctic Monkeys? They're playing. Uh, no, they're, they're playing. 
Yeah, well, they're, they're trying to break that record. Yeah. Well, they're trying to... You know, open, but, 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 you know, if I'm going to go see them, I'm going to go see them when they're opening for the Black Keys, though. So, uh, but anyway, this thing is in New Jersey. It's going to be, and I don't have the date on it. It's also, I, too, what bands are in the area and, yeah. it, you know, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, the, uh, that's going to be later on this year in, uh, New Jersey, I believe. Actually, yeah, I think near Atlantic City. If I'm looking at that right. Yeah, it is Atlantic City, uh, June 23rd and 24th. So there you go. Oh, Avenged Sevenfold. Why? Um, I keep looking at the, the band announcements are rather random for this. Um, that's just weird. But uh, uh, this could possibly be like a yearly thing for them. So good luck. Well, do we, okay, so I just real quickly, because I, I know we don't want to dwell on it, but what do you guys, do you think this is going to work? I mean, Rob, do you think this is going to work? Well, I think it's, you know, they're trying to recapture what they did with Lollapalooza, where they have lots of different bands with different genres to get people to come, is what I think they're trying to do. Um, and I think, too, that they've realized that the idea of a festival where all the bands sort of sound the same is kind of not always necessarily working. Um, so maybe uh, which is what Metallica has been doing the last couple of years with this uh, Monsters of Rock thing. Yeah. So maybe they're trying to do something that's different than all the other festivals that are out there. Well, well, Tuffley, what do you think it's going to work? I'm just curious because you know, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know. know. It's and just kind of weird. It is kind of weird, and it's one of those things that kind of makes you go, "Well, okay, so Metallica's involved, so you kind of figure, okay, so they're." They actually did pick these bands. Um, and you kind of start to think, well, did they pick these bands because they want to still look cool and relevant to the, to the audience? Or did they actually pick these bands because they like some of them? Because somehow I, and this is just me. I can't see, I, I can't see where Cage the Elephant and Arctic Monkeys kind of work with Avenged Sevenfold. I don't, I don't see that, but maybe it's just me. But uh, I don't know. It, because there it could also be they hired somebody to put their name on it. It could be. could be. Although, you know, I tend to think, I do really tend to think that um, as much as Metallica likes to control everything, uh, as much as Lars and James like to, to put, their, put their fingers on everything that they're involved with, I, I, I would actually believe they did this. <laughs> I would actually believe they're the ones who came up with this. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it's in New Jersey. Um, so it's in Atlantic City. <laughs> well, no, but you think about it. Um, they, it's in Atlantic City and especially in the New York area, they have been trying to have some sort of festival for years and it didn't work. Lollapalooza, the last time Lollapalooza tried something there, it didn't sell out. There have yeah. been, there have been, I, you probably know this better than I have, but there have been several, festivals with high-profile bands at the top of the bill in the New York area that would not sell at all, and they had to end up canceling it. Yeah. Um, so this will be interesting to see if it takes off because of Metallica, because it's Metallica, and uh, and and it'll be interesting to see how it works and how it, how it, how it, you know you know is this another Lollapalooza? Who knows? It's it's interesting to watch, but. I am more curious to see if if a festival somewhere in the new the metro New York area will get off the ground because well 
yeah, there. I mean, there's something crazy in the water because you have this festival, you have Kuma Gang opening for Van Halen. I mean, there's just all kinds of bizarre. Something's going on in the universe. It's yeah, the Mayans. it's the Mayans, and and we should all be afraid of the Mayans. They would have their revenge, and here it comes. And here it comes. Uh, ben Folds Five uh, are hooking back up, um, which is interesting because I. Especially if you listen to Ben Fold's stuff, you really can't tell where the band comes in, or at least I can't. Um, I, I know this should make a difference, but actually, as an admission, I will admit that I don't really see the difference between Ben Fold's five and his solo stuff, supposedly. Well, it's probably just him saying that he's going to move less away from just him and a piano and more into an ensemble sound. Which, yeah, Same. which, yeah. So. Uh, and he's kind of been nudging towards that with like uh, like the Nick Hornby record, and uh, there's uh, he just put out something else too uh, that was collaborative. But he's been doing and he did the uh, eight on eight thing with uh, Amanda Palmer and Neil and uh, the guy from OK Go. So. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, I I don't know it, it. Do and maybe I just feel a little blah about this because I can't tell the difference between really the Ben Folds 5 and the Ben Folds solo stuff. But what do you guys think about this? Well, my thing is, is that I, <clears throat> I mean, yes, if you basically, if I did not know that it was Ben Folds 5 versus Ben Folds, I probably wouldn't tell the difference. But I have seen both live. And yeah. uh, th that is one of the live shows that I would probably show up for because I hate going to live shows. Um because the energy is a lot different when it's uh yeah yeah in the studio yeah you're right there's not much difference because he's either playing everything or he's brought somebody in to play it yeah. but on but stage someone else to yes. bounce off of. yes great. yes so uh so no I'm I'm happy about this because I will say that I have enjoyed both five and non five Benfolds yeah and uh, I even enjoyed uh, what is it the uh, autobiography of Reinhold Messerner which nobody else seemed to like um oh but, i love that record yeah what you and me and five other people apparently but uh <laughs> but but no it's it's like i i really enjoyed all their stuff and so the idea of them coming back together especially when they've had this time away to kind of uh evolve separately uh i think is really interesting so i'm i'm fascinated to see where this goes and and just to make a point i do like ben fold as well uh i just i just yeah, and it's the thing where you can't tell it on record. But yeah, I I can see what you're saying because I haven't seen them live, so maybe that's like be... not knowing the difference between Joan Jett and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Yeah, yeah, kind of. But I I do think though that part of what's going to make this interesting is that you know not that and we don't want to mislead people. Ben Folds, you know, by himself with a piano or with a, or doing a classical thing is very entertaining. But having other musicians on him, sort of where he can just sort of pause and let the band take over and then come in and sort of there, there's a sort of kinetic energy to seeing that band live and a certain weird sort of improvisational joy and glee that they get off of feeding with each other oh my god know? well let and me it's so organic it's so organic it's like they don't even have to try well what um, my, my thing rob let me just throw in here if anyone wants to hear them improv improvising their asses off there is a song off of one of their that one of their like B side albums called "For Those of Y'all That Wear Fanny Packs," which fucking makes me laugh. It's like a seven minute, six or seven minute insane them at a sound check where somebody just managed to record it off the board, 
and they do that a lot. Yeah, but uh, they, they, it's just, it's them, it's, it's insane. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. Uh, and, but it, god damn it, it's funny. <laughs> Cause I had, I had something where they were playing a show, and I guess it was, yeah, I guess it was in London or something, where they had managed to cover both the Smiths briefly, and then the, what, the setup for the Smiths set it up for, uh, doing, uh, Champagne Supernova as a twangy country song. Oh yeah, I've heard that. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, I, I could see that. <laughs> so um, and speaking of bouncing, uh, the uh, two live crew is uh, reuniting. I know you're thrilled. Um, I know. Contain your excitement. Um, but apparently, and I didn't know. I I thought all of them were were, were too old to to have you know stripper poles, but uh, apparently they do. Um, pony has been turning to glue by now, but okay. Exactly, exactly. But, uh, but, uh, two live crew will be touring, uh, apparently this summer. Um, and part of this is apparently, uh, promoting a, uh, a documentary film, uh, about Luke Campbell, uh, that, uh, that made the rounds at Sundance earlier, uh, in the year. And, um, they're going to be, uh, they're going to be out on the road. And it's interesting. I find the quote here interesting, uh, that, uh, that Luke had is we're going to perform the songs and everybody's going to be excited. Some of the older people of our generation will be able to t- tell their kids, you're staying home tonight. We're going to go see two live crew and shake our booty. That was end quote. Um, I would never say the word booty. Um, actually I did yes, twice. Yes, just did. Three times. Yeah, I know. Three um, times a booty. Yeah. Sorry. So here's the thing, and I, I kind of said this when we talked about the Beach Boys a bit. Some of these bands that are reuniting, I'm just not, I'm just not that excited about. At the drive-in, I am a bit excited about, um, just because it's interesting, at, just just to see that band again because that band was so short-lived and really good. Um, but. Uh, but some of these bands, some of these people that are doing reunions now, I mean, Stone Roses, I couldn't even get, get excited, even though they're not even coming here. So that's also the other reason. But, uh, there's just, there, yeah, I'm not as excited about the Happy Mondays as I, as I would expect to be either. Yeah, yeah, Happy Mondays too. And, and the thing I have about Two Live Crew is there's only a certain period of time you ever listened to Two Live Crew. And it was when you were 12 and it was because you thought swearing was funny. You know uh, what I mean? No. <laughs> I just, I totally just left out to crew. dry, Tuffley. No, That's I just, okay. I just, no, I just remember two like crew when there was the whole band in the USA thing, and that was it. And I don't remember anything before them. Or I, I just never heard it, you know. Yeah. And then when I was in the record store, I never remember people coming in. Oh man, give me that two live crew with the jam. I just never remember. <laughs> Here's the thing, and which I don't know, I don't know if you can back me up on this, but I, I, I lived, uh, because we lived in Alabama, um, that is how a lot of white redneck kids got into hip hop, was because and of that might um, be, and, and that's that what I was wondering, is if it's a, if it's a, I, although I will say, <laughs> I don't think that the whole, like, Atlanta rap movement thing would have happened had not, like, somebody like Two Life Crew broken. Oh, yeah. Because it seemed like it moved, it moved hip hop to the south out of the, out of the northern cities. But, I just never heard much of it. I mean, and it also set up, and it also, to be fair, it also set up a distribution base that wasn't based in New York or California because that was the important part of it too. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm just toughly the, the going back to 
I think the one of the roots of your question is <laughs> some of these reunions, have they actually done any market research to determine that anyone's going to fucking show up? Because, I mean, of all, of all the reunions that we have talked about or hinted at or whatever, the number one one that I think I just go, who's going to go to that is two live crew. Yeah. I mean, honestly. Well, because Technotronic was unavailable. Technotronic. <laughs> no, they're touring with Snap next year, sir. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Rhythm Has Arthritis Tour. Um, the Rhythm didn't get you. But gout, uh, but gout did. But gout did. Um, no, it just seems pointless to me. To have, like, I mean, not to be disrespectful to two life crew because they probably did. They to be to be perfectly fair, they took a hit for everyone fighting censorship in the music industry, and it probably ruined their career. They were probably the casualty of that whole battle, but they did not fight that fight without going down swinging. So we should give them that. Um, oh, they get that, and but they should have stayed with that. No, I know, I know. I'm just saying. I'm just trying to. I I think the reunion is utterly pointless, but I'm not trying to. By saying the reunion is utterly pointless, I'm not trying to be overly dismissive of their of their place in music industry sort of importance. Sort of. Well, and, and to be fair, for either. the record, I was. But. Yeah. Um, Did so, you have the hat on backwards with the with the overalls going yo all the time? No, actually. And see, here's the thing: I was already listening to like um, I was already listening to like Ren DMC and and yeah. and yeah. even like Fred Prince. I'll I'll. And that's the thing: that. the stuff that I heard that they were contemporaries doing to me sounded better at the time. Yeah, and although the first time I did hear "Band in the USA," I did think it was funny. Yeah. But I, yeah. I just remember, I just remember, um, a lot of looking around at, at, at school at my classmates and a lot of them who, if you looked at their CD collections, they mostly comprised of George Strait albums, um, that suddenly somewhere in the middle there is two live crew. Yeah. And I just thought that was weird because that seemed like a bit of a flip. That seemed like the point where, okay. I know a lot of white people actually listening to this now. Um, that's weird. You know, you know what would have been a great career move for that band? Hmm. Is if they should have made a record with Rudy Ray Dolomite. <laughs> wow. Wow. It, it would have been genius. And, and unfortunately, I have no way to transition that into the next story. So I'll try Sorry. to. No, I didn't mean to. Ah, it's all right. Again, I'm killing the podcast. Our two no, it's fine. No, it's fine. It's it's a challenge. How how can he transition into this? Oh well. Anyway, um, well, if it makes you feel any better, there's people in Britain asking these very same questions about Kajagugu. So we are not alone. <laughs> it's Kajagugu, actually Kajagugu, and what is it? Culture Club. Culture Club is more high profile, and they're touring now, aren't they? And Lamal's on. Lamal was on the Kajagugu tour. Yeah, he's, wow. he's touring with him. Yeah. Wow. He, yeah. There's optimism. Um. <laughs> So, uh, so, uh, we didn't watch the Super Bowl, did we? No. No. Not, not, not to the Super Bowl watching? Okay. Um, well, there was, there was a halftime show. 
Uh, I the, told everybody. I that, told you. There was a halftime show that happened. Yeah. And uh, Madonna was on it. And um, and 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 she had, I believe, uh, Nicki Minaj uh, as her guest. Uh, she had uh, LMFAO Schwartz TC. No. Yeah, and and, um, and I believe CeeLo came out at one point. Um, but somewhere in between these, 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 these points, um, uh, MIA actually had a verse on her new single. And when she came out to perform it, um, MIA took the opportunity to, uh, protest the Super Bowl halftime show that she was not forced to do by, uh, flipping the bird specifically to the camera during a live telecast. Um, <sighs> I know. Uh, Not MIA, since Johnny Rotten pissed on American Bandstand has been such a furor. Uh, yeah, MIA, full of rage about uh, halftime shows, apparently. Um, so, first of all, here's the first question I'll throw out is, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? Is 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 that like is that like shocking to be quote finger quote shocking or? Did she really have to do it because the bad girl single is actually, actually pretty good or, you know, all sorts of things. But what, what, what do you make of all this? Uh, well, I, so, so she was, did she come out and say she had done this in protest? No, no, I just uh, made that up. Oh, okay, good. Cause I was, I was confused. I was like, wait a minute. I don't she remember. not explained why she flipped off anybody yet from what I understand. No. Yeah, she has it, and uh, I, I just, I just think this is. First of all, who cares? It, it's a finger gesture. That uh, who is there? Anyone other than like I don't know, eighty-year-old blue hairs that really get offended by that? I mean, because you, you, I mean, for God's sake, don't go driving in Atlanta. You see it all the time. <laughs> the only thing I do is I give the, uh, you know, I give the British V just so I can uh, confuse people. Um, but uh but no I mean I I don't understand what what the big deal is. I mean Rob called it. You could have seen it coming a mile off. It's it's something's going to happen that's going to be controversial. Yawn and move on. Yeah. Yeah, and and here's the funny thing because I thought if anything was going to happen it was going to be another wardrobe malfunction with Nicki Minaj because yeah. I have yet to see her fully clothed in anything she's ever been in. So um so uh, I was kind of wondering what was going to fall off while she was while while during the Super Bowl performance, but apparently, but apparently she came out squeaky clean I in mean, this one. To be fair, we don't know the we don't know what made her flip somebody off. Was it the cameraman? Was it somebody else around? I mean, there could have been a number of things. That the, that woman is crazy. So <laughs> you know, or it could have been a Sri Lankan gesture of friendliness. Friendliness. But, friendliness, yes. Um, because as we know, as we know, MIA is such a happy, carefree girl. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting subtext to the Super Bowl performance. I thought were were really interesting. So, and and here's the thing: even if you look at it, like I said, even if you look at it as a vehicle of self promotion, um, the single's not that bad. It's actually a lot better than a lot some no. of most and of the both. And they're both on the Madonna record. Yeah, they're and both they're both on, on the single. Madonna record. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. If that was self-promotion. And here's the other thing. Um, and I didn't find out about this until after I sent the agenda out, but I was reading up on this. And, uh, since the Janet Jackson, um, malfunction, which we may talk about shortly, um, since that occurred, the NFL put a clause in the performance contracts 
for the uh, for the halftime show, which basically which basically says if something like that happens during your performance and you're responsible, you get to pay for the fines. Well, yeah, the simple, you know, what I thought was interesting about this Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah. Uh, one, Madonna did that entire thing for free and paid for everything. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and she, it has even been said that, you know, after the show went off, that she was seen basically ripping MIA a new asshole. Yeah. You know, um, which I thought was interesting. And I also love the fact that I, I know CeeLo's on her album, but, um, Nicki Minaj and MIA are both on her new record. Mm-hmm. And, um, I thought the stuff with CeeLo was great. I did not know that LMFAO were related to the Gordies from Motown, which I thought was also kind of interesting. Oh, are they? Yeah, one of them is Rockwell's kid, and then the, they're all like very really? Gordy's grandkids. Yeah, one of them is very, is, is Rockwell's kid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the thing that really makes this really interesting is, um, and they pointed this out on when I was watching, um, CNN. Yeah. All of the people that were, that Madonna brought in for that halftime show were all different people that Lady Gaga had at some point dissed in the last year. Musically. Oh. So it's on. It's on. Yeah. And she's I got mean, a record. What? She got a record coming out. Uh... Yes. I don't think she's got one. I think that they're rushing one because the last one didn't do so well. Yeah. But, um, like I, I, that thing with MIA was, was, was kind of nasty. Yeah. And I don't, I think Madonna's sort of above all of it. I think Madonna's just going to come out, put out an album, make a shitload of money on a tour, win a Grammy, and shut, I don't think she's, I mean, it's really interesting that she's being controversial and being relevant by not saying anything. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see this whole thing with the finger. She hasn't said a word, you know? Yeah. Um, and that to me is interesting. And it's almost like you could totally tell well, I believe she thing. did put out a brief statement where she actually apologized. Okay, I didn't hear for, that for that happening during the performance. But kind yeah. of, I, I think she technically kind of threw MIA under the bus for that, but uh, rightly so. But it was but a very. I'm not confused. Statement. I mean, they both have a vested interest in each other, so technically, you know, this is all could be a very carefully staged propaganda thing where. You know, Madonna's image is, is cleaned up. MIA, you know, gets to solidify her image as a bad girl. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's an ARG involving fingers. Yeah, it, the problem is someone in the record industry would have to think of it, and I'm not sure any of those people are left that would think of something like that. But um, Rob, your rates are reasonable. I'd like to point that out to the <laughs> listeners out there. Rob's rates also reasonable. But um, available for parts. No, I mean, I think it's. I I I was I was with you here that I think it's rather irrelevant. I mean, I just. I think that the overall performance was so, uh, so, uh, so much eye candy in terms of like the big floor that she had that did all the stuff, all the flashing lights and stuff that unless someone had told you MIA flipped off the camera, I don't think half of America would have known. Well, half of I America, half of America didn't know until they read it. I didn't notice until it came it up got, later. It got black. It, it was able to be blocked out in the West Coast, but the East Coast got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I heard about it like right after. I left the place where I was watching the game. Yeah. But I like, I literally didn't notice, you know, sorry, you know, but then it's the type of thing that I'm, if I see it happen, I'm so oblivious to it happening that, you know, it's, it's not, it, flipping a finger has kind of culturally lost its significance as being an offensive gesture, you know? Yeah. It is the, it is basically the shit 
of of hand of hand gestures now. Yeah. Whereas you know, shit used to be an offensive word. It's nothing now. Flipping the bird is like basically nothing. You know, unless you see it on Sesame Street. Yeah. Um, you know, or Mister Rogers. Then it's sort of like, oh my god. You know, but in in the day and age when we have South Park and things like that, they're getting offended about this. You know, it's just yeah. We got people blowing up their fucking kids, and they're worrying about MIA flipping somebody off. I just think this whole thing is asinine to get, yeah. to get riled up about. And so, the NFL, the NFL should be happy because it's the first time in I think five or six years that people actually stayed that they had a carryover through the halftime show. You yeah, know, it's the first decent one. And I've heard next year they're trying to get Beyonce and Jay Z, but which will be bigger. But I mean, they haven't had a good halftime show at all in years, and they have one, and then they just bitch about it. You know, they could have, you know, the Beatles show up and play for their halftime show, and someone would have a problem with something that happened on stage. Well, you know? and part of the problem, though, Rob, is like, do you think that they are well, bitching? Well, Zombie John, for one thing. Well, that, do you think that they're bitching about it publicly, but privately behind closed doors, they're going, "Oh, thank God!" I mean. Because, because they... I think there's, I think there's a little of that. The younger people, yes. Uh, the NFL is very much sort of an old, stodgy group of owners. So I think that the the owners are probably like, oh my god, this is horrible. But all the um, sort of young people in the in between levels are like genius, you know. Um, and honestly, you know, I think the wardrobe malfunction is far more of an issue than flipping somebody off because I can totally understand, you know, but. The stuff that these the kids like, they're like, oh, my kids are seeing this. Well, are you are you upset about MIA flipping the bird and then your kid's going to go in the other room and go play Grand Theft Auto? You know, uh, your, the level of violence and stuff that kids are exposed to now is so far greater than what we got as a kid, as kids, that this is almost nothing. If this would have happened like when I was like 15 or 16, it would have been like a huge big deal. But Really? I mean, they're, they're exposed to so much more yeah. stuff that this is the least of it, you know. Um, if she had, like, clubbed the baby seal or something, I could see getting upset, you know. But really, um, it's not that big of a deal to me. It's just, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to, you know, yes, I, I get that there's a code of conduct you do when you're on live television. and It's sort of a contract where you agree not to be an ass. Or not to make an idiot of yourself. But you know what? If she wants to go out and flip somebody off on TV and make herself look like she's, you know, not the smartest tool in the shed for doing that, it's a free freaking country. It's, <laughs> it's freedom of expression. I'm sorry. You know? So, you so know, place your if bets. You, if you were worried about something, I mean, I'm sorry, if you were worried about something happening during a halftime show with, with, if you weren't, I'm sorry, if you weren't worrying about there being some sort of a controversy or something that could, bleed your wholesome kids hearts dry why let them watch a madonna halftime show to begin with so you place know. your bets place your bets uh so who are we looking at for next year if there is severe blowback from this you already I mentioned think, you already think, mentioned jay-z and beyonce bet. well the super bowl's in new york next year yeah and i think that's a safe bet okay or okay. or the other option is billy joel because he's, you know, they're, they're looking at like New York big music, music, uh, musicians, so they, they might need to keep MIA and Speedo in case they wanted to come out and flip off people during the uh, Billy Joel thing. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. But I have to say, the CeeLo part during Like a Prayer that was pretty awesome. Yeah. You know, and that probably had absolutely. For example, 
when Ridge mentioned behind closed doors, having CeeLo Green perform at the halftime at the Super Bowl when the voice just by weird coincidence followed the Super Bowl on NBC was just a coincidence. Did it? Yeah. Oh, that's all I'm saying. You know, so I just think there's better things to worry about, you know, but. Yeah, there's a Beach Boys reunion happening. (laughs) (laughs) When did we drop our card for that to happen? You know, I think you just cut your losses and put MIA and two live crew at the hat on the Super Bowl show and get on with it. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so as is customary for an edition of the soundboard, as we are digging out and catching up, uh, we've come across a couple of folks we've lost in the in the last little bit, and uh, we will start with probably the biggest of the of the lot, probably Etta James. I would mm. say is probably the biggest of that lot. Uh, Rob, what? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. You want me to start? Yes, please. Okay. Well, it's interesting because Johnny Otis also died, and Etta James died. Why this is interesting, you ask, is because Johnny Otis discovered Etta James. Hmm. Uh, so we'll get to that in a minute. But I just think that's a, that's a weird thing to have happen within days of each other. But, um, Etta, you know, the, the interesting thing about Etta James is that at a time when they put African Americans on TV or presented themselves as singers or whatever, they were very careful to try to manage their image and make sure that they didn't mouth off, be too much trouble, or piss anybody off. And Etta James would have absolutely none of that. So <laughs> you've got this fiery, pissed off, I'm doing whatever the hell I want, back the hell up woman on T you know, doing her thing. But then that voice gives you at last. Um which I absolutely. think is a very interesting thing. And in case you've never heard Etta James, you've heard Etta James, you just don't realize it. Oh, yeah, I seriously. Think everyone that goes to a funeral at some or a wedding at some point has heard At Last, or a high school band. Um, Etta James had one of those voices that you could put with any sort of orchestral background and it would totally work. She could sing the phone book and it would sound incredible. Yep. Um, I tend to think of her as the heir apparent to Ella Fitzgerald but the bridge to Aretha Franklin. That's how I kind of view her. Um, yeah, that actually makes total sense now that you mention it. Yeah. And, uh, but she is, I mean, she, she had, uh, and I, I'm, and I'm, she was no means, you know, somebody that was like, you know, killing babies or anything when I say that she was a, uh, feisty, but she was very much at a time when the industry tried to control all of their performers, particularly minority performers. She was very much her own woman, her own performer. And I think that that sort of opened the door for a whole lot of the other Motown stuff to come later. Uh, I think she's also interesting because she bridged sort of that uh, blues singer to soul singer sort of gap. Because I think she could do blues, I think she could do soul, and her songs just had this thing in them. Like, at last, you just you just hear, when you listen to At Last, you hear somebody that's just probably been through so much that, you know, the idea of, like, being happy, you can hear the happiness in the song. And then you hear some of her other stuff, you can just sort of hear that this is a lifestyle that's singing at you and a lifetime of experiences, not just a performer writing songs. And I think that's probably her greatest thing, is that she was able to set the mood of a song 
with just her voice, whereas other singers sort of had to have the band do it or necessarily the song itself. And I think her presence itself was really great. Even if you go on YouTube and you watch the videos of her late in life singing, she still had a presence. Sort of this idea of um, stage presence uh, was huge to her. And I think very much the idea of I'm the singer in front of the band, you're paying attention to me, sort of the, the, with the, with a, with a female singer was really huge. Cause in the past, if, if there was a woman singer on stage, they'd be off on the side or they'd be, you know, in a chorus, you know, sort of like the Supremes or the Ronettes or something like that. With her, it very much put the idea of a single R&B singer on the same level as a male R&B singer. Um, her chart success was great. Uh, she sold a lot of records. She covered a lot of ground with, you know, both blues records, soul records. And uh, I don't think she ever really compromised her career. And I think that she left a legacy of recording that is pretty damn perfect. I, I, I haven't really ever heard a bad Eddie James song. So she also culturally sort of, at the time of civil rights movement, at a time of incredible change and tumult in the country, sort of set a standard for everyone who came after her for what she did. So I think that kind of, with me, encompasses her. So, there you go. Which, did you have something you wanted to add to that? No, I mean, I mean, he, he completely encapsulated where where she fits in with the with the evolution there of, of music. And, but, I mean, she, you're absolutely right. She could, she, she was the musical equivalent of, you know, James Earl Jones speaking. And that yeah. James Earl Jones could speak the phone book and we would all pay 75 bucks to go hear him. I still think that tour needs to happen, but I mean, it, it's absolutely true. Etta James could sing anything and she was amazing. And it's uh it's, it's a terrible loss that she's gone. Now you were saying something about yeah. how this connects to Johnny Otis besides the, well, he discovered her. Well the, well, the other thing I want to say too, is that I never, ever, I always tell people that, you know, when people die and we tell them to listen to the recordings, they always sort of, you know, it's never really emphasized, but I cannot tell you again, your life is sorely missing something if you've never heard an Etta James record. I'm deadly serious about that. I mean, it is one of those rites of passage that you have to go through. It is, you know, it's just... It's a sound that everybody born on the planet needs to hear. That's the only way I can describe her voice. Um, Johnny Otis is kind of interesting because he also was a character. Um, he had later in life, he wrote a, uh, an R rated book on psychedelic drugs and formed his own non-denominational church. Um, he's also the father of Shuggy Otis, who's an amazing musician, but he produced a lot of records. His big thing is that he, in, uh, also, this, in addition to discovering Etta James, um, the, oh, I'm drawing a blank now. Toughly help me. The songwriting duo, I'm thinking of them in my hand and they're gone. Wait. But they wrote Hound Dog. Oh, Lieber and Stoller? Uh, Lieber and Stoller. We were talking about them previously. Lieber yeah. and Stoller. He discovered them. Oh, shit. And put them, put them in touch with, with, with Big Mama Thornton. Nice. To record. Yeah. So, he has a very relevant place in rock and soul history of always being in the right place at the right time, one, as a producer, as a songwriter, and kind of as a performer. But he also had his own TV and radio show. So he was one of the first guys that sort of parlayed his success on radio and turned it into TV, right? Which is big. But then he was also one of the first people that was 
uh, a minority that took that success as a minority and got it got it to work. I mean, he, yeah. I believe, I believe he came from a Greek background. He was he was fair skinned, um, but I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if he was considered full African American or whether he was mixed or what it was. But I remember them saying something about he was Greek, but everyone thought he was African American, so he got he got blackballed in the same way. Yeah. Um, so it was, he was very relevant in that, you know, he sort of took the, I have a radio show, I have a TV show, and it sort of broke a color barrier that, that did, that, that hadn't really been done before. The amount of songs he wrote for other people are, are pretty big. Um, the hand drive itself is, is huge. Um, and he's just one of these, he's one of these sort of people in the music industry that we had in the fifties and sixties when, in addition to being, you know, a songwriter or a producer, you had to sort of be almost a, a raconteur. He was, that's basically the best way to describe him because he managed to get all the right people in all the right places to make the records he couldn't make. And he also got a lot of people their first start and he also sort of knocked down some doors, uh, broke some barriers and generally was responsible for a lot of really great singles in, in his lifetime. So, and he's also very colorful. I mean, I think the the fact that he had um not well well again, not the extreme life that Eddie James went through, but the fact that he was really colorful and flamboyant in his life is is something. I mean, pretty incredible. So and I can't remember the movie that it was. There was a movie that came out a couple of years ago where Beyonce played Eddie James. Uh that was the um Oh, it was the the mm, Wedge. Uh, Larkin. Yeah. But that was great. So, that's it about Johnny Otis, for me in a nutshell. Um, but I, just discovering Lieber and Stoller and realizing that they could write songs and encourage him yeah. to write songs for other people is a pretty big deal. Also getting, you know, Etta James out there to get heard is also a big deal. So, I mean, that, that's a pretty big thing. He was, he was the nexus for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, would you, do you want to add something about Johnny Otis? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I think Rob wrapped it up nicely. Did you find the movie? What's that? Did you find the movie? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm working on it now. I'm, I'm trying to find her thing. So it was the, it was the thing Jennifer Hudson was in, and, and we should know this. And viewers, we, viewers, listeners, home users, we apologize. No, and uh, oh wait, 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 uh, uh, Cadillac Records. Yeah, that's it. Which is a great movie. I highly recommend that. Um. And again, both of these figures, both Johnny Otis and Edward James, are in, are well, well, they're not necessarily they're not going to be forgotten for who they were. But it brings home again that there are so many really great musical artists in the fifties and sixties that are completely overlooked, and people just have no idea who they are. And I got to tell you, you're doing yourself a big favor if you check out you know any of the records that Johnny Otis helped make. Or just look at the records that he helped get, you know, burst into the world. Uh, it's pretty incredible. And again, you have to hear Eddie James at least once. And, and, and it's on Spotify, so don't you don't you have no excuse now. You can get yes. to it easily. I, I think that Eddie James probably could have lived five lifetimes on just the money alone from that last. Probably. Oh, certainly. You know? Oh, certainly. Um, Move. Yeah, this, even even the strings in it, the way she sings underneath the strings in that last is pretty incredible. A lot of singers would have walked over that. 
and she sort of knew all the nuanced things. And for somebody that was very much so um, very particular about being the center and the focus of the song, for her to sort of know when not to sing and let the music play play out, it's really it's a really interesting balancing act to hear her sing on a record. So I'm done. Okay. Uh, so, uh, we also, and actually just, uh, just last week, uh, as we were recording this, uh, we, uh, we lost Don Cornelius, uh, who, uh, if that name doesn't sound familiar, uh, that, that, the Soul Train, which he hosted and created. Kids ask uh, your parents. Kids ask your parents. Uh, brought a lot, a lot of people, uh, got a lot of people exposure on television and, uh, it was it was really interesting show as far as how he got it, the story of how he set up the show and uh, built a syndication network for it. Yeah, there would not be a voice. There would not be a American Idol. None of this would have happened without Don Cornelius. Oh, yeah. No. Oh, yeah. And uh, just the exposure he gave to, uh, to artists, uh, particularly in the 70s, at a time when um, it was a little hard for you know, Solax to get on the radio. Um, particularly in the early seventies when it was, you know, when FM was pretty much dominated by album rock. Yeah. Uh, and you would argue too, that he gave a lot of the, a, a large portion of the success of disco is, is based on, on Don Cornelius. Uh, because basically what he did is soul train was an avenue where any performer could go on and perform. And then literally their records the next day were hits if they did a really good job on it. Yeah. But uh, at the time when that show debuted, there was not, you know, there weren't urban radio stations. You know, there yeah. weren't like networks of them. And there wasn't really um, any sort of way to connect all of the urban artists into one big family. And he sort of did that. He sort of got, you know, all these people to say, look, we have a musical movement that's pretty incredible. So you have, you know, Aretha Franklin and Marvin Gaye both singing on his show. You've got Earth, Wind, and Fire on. You've got, um, you know, Parliament. You've got David Bowie. You've got all these people that he thought were musically interesting. And I think the only sort of basic rule is that it had to have some sort of a groove to it, you know? Yeah. And it was pretty much like watching American Bandstand, but with a largely African-American group of musicians performing. Not and the kids could actually American dance. Yeah, and not to say that American Bandstand did not put African Americans on because they did, but it was like American Bandstand sort of put the African Americans acts acts on after they sort of went through like a sort of filtration process. Yeah. And Don Cornelius, there, there was no filter. He's just like, I think you guys are great. Come on down to the to the uh, the studio and we'll do it. You know, he did it at the um, on like the forty seventh floor of the Chicago Board of Trade. Oh, what was it? What was it? Uh, Shalimar. He uh, yeah. He directly discovered was that. Yeah. Am I right about that? Because they were dancers on the show. Yeah. And, you know, it was great. If you ever want to, if you ever, what's interesting is you watch a Soul Train is on in some cities in, in reruns. That's how powerful it is. Yeah. But when you watch Soul Train, you kind of not only get to hear, like, the music that powered and fueled, you know, the, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You also can look at it within one hour and sort of understand the cultural textural texture of the show in terms of fashion, in terms of what the artists are and just what they're talking about, you know? Yeah. Um, so 
it, it was a music show, but it's a little more than that. It was a really culturally relevant phenomenon. And Don Cornelius started on the radio and just sort of said, you know, had this idea about, you know, I'm going to put all these guys on TV and, and have a dance party and see what happens. So they kind of it kind of took the elements of like the basic, you know, cool house party, but put like a, a really good jam band in the house party and then put it on TV. And I think part of the reason it got on TV is it was relatively cheap to make. You know, you just have a tell a bunch of people to show up and start dancing. You know, you don't have to yeah. pay these kids, you know. So it really is a grassroots bottom up empire the guy built, you know, and he was a master of promotion and marketing and getting everything sort of put together. I mean, oh, he all the right pieces together, which I think is, is his genius. So, uh, which did you want to add something about Don Cornelius? <clears throat> no, I know we talk a lot about Soul Train and its ilk very shortly. No, no, I, I, I think we'll, we'll spin it into that because I think Rob, again, uh, capsulate for me. I, I just remember watching it, you know, as a kid and just not really being into it because it was a party that I, I uh, was too young to, you know, get into, you know, and I was, I wasn't into the music at that time. Uh, I, I was still probably, I don't know, at, at that time when, when Soul Train would come on and, and it would be accessible to me when I was still watching television much, uh, a long time ago. Uh, I was probably still listening to, I don't know, Bob Dylan, the Beatles and the Coasters. So I just, yeah. I wasn't ready for it. Uh, but looking back, I, you know, I, I appreciate it exactly like Rob says. So, and I, so sort of, I would sort of watch it to, understand the music that my brother and my sisters were listening to or walking around the house singing it was which you know and so there was a very easily connection with that too because anyone in the family could turn on soldier and it was still relatively wholesome too it wasn't really um and if it wasn't it was very well sort of under the radar of the average person um but the thing that was great about it is that it was one of those music shows that was multi-generational you know it wasn't yeah. like wasn't like solid gold where you had to almost be like a teenager to sort of get it and think it was cool. I mean, you could, a grandfather, a grandmother, a son, a daughter, and their kids could all probably watch it and relate to it. Yeah, which to be fair, for the longest time, was why Don Cornelius didn't book any any rap acts on Soul Train or resisted doing it for a very very long time. Yeah. Uh, was to kind of keep it keep the general audience's tag on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and again, something we'll get to in just a minute, but I remember, um, honestly, I started watching Soul Train technically by accident because of the animation at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that was like, oh, that looks cool. Cause in my market in which I don't know if you remember, um, this, when it aired in out, when it aired in Huntsville, the Huntsville station that aired it, um, it was the ABC affiliate. Um, it would air, typically it would air after bandstand, but if, for some reason, it was moved elsewhere. It was then moved in front of, behind the cartoons. Right, yes. So the opening, so the animated opening for Soul Train almost fit in. And if you caught the beginning by accident, you would think, okay, well, this is, this is, this is the other part of Super Friends I didn't watch. What's the deal with the train? <laughs> nice. So, so that's how I, I accidentally started watching Soul Train, but then I kind of got into it. Um, and that's kind of that kind of leads us to the big topic. Um, Soul Train and its ilk uh, music shows uh, used to be at some point 
in the seventies or eighties, uh, especially the seventies and, and even up to the late eighties, um, you, you couldn't flick around the channel on Saturday afternoons without, without crashing into like dancing teenagers or, or, or miming bands or something. But, um, you know, and all of a sudden it seems like, and it actually is, at least in the States, at least in the United States anyway, um, that kind of all of these shows have sort of dried up and disappeared. And, you know, I, I kind of started thinking since with, 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 uh, Don Cornelius' passing and thinking a lot about, you know, Soul Train and it kind of turning us all on to this, you know, sort of different musical experience that we obviously, the three of us obviously weren't getting in our radios anyway. Um, and, and, and it's, it's interesting to me that, that, that we don't have that anymore. And I was trying to, I, I was trying to figure out why, because Rob, you brought it up where you said, well, it's cheap to make, but if it's yeah. cheap to make and there's obviously um, an audience for that sort of thing, the why answer don't we is going to be incredibly weird. The original answer is going to be very weird. Um, you have, you know, basically in our generation, you have American Bandstand. We all kind of watched, which led to Solid Gold and even in some cases Star Search. And, you know, those sort of spun off into like Friday night videos or Saturday night videos or things like that. But you still had some sort of show with performers doing music on it. You know, yeah. it wasn't like England where you had Top of the, Top of the Pops or Old Grey Whistle Test and they were just on for years and it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Um, MTV did club MTV even so you this sort of bled all the way into the 80s when you know you had club MTV would play like you know EMF but they'd also play some hip-hop and like Belvedere DeVoe and soul and and pop stuff right so yeah. that kind of took sort of took off on cable because major networks were dropping it and then and the major networks were dropping it which is weird major networks were dropping it because of MTV yeah but then the big lightning bolt hit, which was Nirvana. And if you think about it, once Solid like Teen Spirit came out, any sort of dance show on TV, once the birth of grunge hit, dead in the water. Well, except for Soul Train. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Star Search gone, roughly, pretty much scalped. Solid well, Gold, I think, it, was scalped by that point. Well, because um, it wasn't a reflection of the audience at that point. Yeah. A dance fever, pretty much. Why the hell do I remember dance fever with Denny Terrio? Um, uh, well, I, 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 to be, to be even worse, I remember, uh, the, the one with, uh, Adrian Zmed. Yeah. He hosted it after Denny Terrio. Yeah. And, but they had like, you know, you watch that show and even though it's called dance fever, they'd have culture club on or ABC. And it was <laughs> cool because a lot of these early new wave bands got their start on a lot of these dance shows, you know, Bowie, like, I think Bowie and the Pet Shop Boys were both on Soul Train, for example. But, you know, Solid Gold would have, like, ABC and Men Without Hats and Flock of Seagulls and all this, like, bizarre stuff on that you'd watch. You know, I remember when Duran Duran split off into Arcadian Power Station. It was a big deal because one of the shows would have Arcadian and the other one would have Power Station. You know, it was like a big deal. Yeah, and didn't then, Soul Train have Power Station, too, at one point? I, I don't remember, but and I think I probably think they probably had Duran Duran on. I could very easily have seen, you know, Culture Club or Duran Duran being on there. Um, but you know, it's kind of like the one it, it, when you had Club MTV and then you had Yellow MTV Raps. Those were two definable sort of dance-oriented shows that were companions to Soul Train. 
And I think what ended up happening is that a lot of these shows got syndicated, like Star Search, Solid Gold, and stuff like that got syndicated. And I just think that um, at some point in the late 80s and the 90s, as we went through the sort of end of the Reagan era when we had the huge recession and, and inflation, yeah. I think those shows got harder to make um, for some reason. And it just wasn't really... It was. I, I think if it would have been on a network, it would have been easier to make. But I think it was harder to make those shows for syndication, um, so that it had a, a network had to basically decide I'm committing to it. And I think MTV committing, for example, to uh, Club MTV every day, and then eventually, you know, the beach parties and things that they did or spring break stuff, I think was the closest thing to a network doing it. Soul Train, for the most part, had enough. And American Bandstand as well had enough of a, uh, of legs on it that nobody was going to pull the plugs on those, and they were selling enough advertising because yeah. they were national shows, and like those were on the major ABC, NBC, CBS stations in markets, right? Yeah, whichever thing. Things. Well, like Soul Train was on in fewer markets. It's also also an interesting point as well. Yeah, uh, Soul Train was on, was on far fewer markets than Bandstand was, but they was in large urban markets, which yeah. was huge. Um, and then the other thing that, that I think is interesting is that, you know, stars, stuff like, um, Solid Gold, which I go back to because I just remember watching, literally watching Solid Gold every week to see the musical guest was going to be, and that would determine whether I would turn it on or turn it off. I remember Soft Cell. Yeah. On, and, on I remember Solid Soft Gold. Cell and Gritty Politi on there. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, those kind of, you know, that kind of stuff, did, it, it was on different networks or different stations in different cities. It was always on, like, whatever your, whatever wasn't your PBS station or your top three network stations. That's where it was. And I think it got harder as syndication came to sell it because it was really motivated by commercials for, for syndication. And I think that's part of what killed it. Um and I think as, you know, we moved from the late, from probably just right before Nirvana, but right in, right before Nirvana, we started to get a little harder with music taste. And then Nirvana just completely turned up the amp, completely. But that sort of went out of style. And then it came to, by the time it came back, that format of program was gone. Yeah. So I think I, that's I think kind if of they what hung on, I think if, I think <laughs> if at least Bandstand had just hung on for like maybe three, four more years to get yeah. past Nirvana, when the Spice Girls came along, that was right in their strike zone. But I think I think the thing with Bandstand quitting was one. Dick Clark just did not want to. And I think if if it would have been now, and he would have been able to hand it off to Ryan Seacrest or something like that, it would have lasted. But there was no one for him to hand the baton off to. Yeah, and I think that's that's another thing we can comment on on the especially when you look at Bandstand and when you look at Soul Train. Um, as the shows went on and as Dick Clark, uh, not so much Dick Clark, but as, especially, especially, and I remember certain instances on Soul Train where Don Cornelius would ask some of the guests questions about their lyrics. Right near, right near the end of Don Cornelius leaving. Mm -hmm. He would like challenge them about, you know, what, what's the deal? Why have you got to, why have you got to be this way with women in your lyrics and all that? Um, and, Particularly for Doug Cornelius, at the point, especially when you're doing a show that relates to youth culture, mm -hmm. the moment you start to look like somebody's dad, it's a disconnect. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think, no. I, 
yeah. think that might have had something to do with Don Cornelius finally deciding to step aside and hand it off to someone else is because he realized, okay, we can't continue to sell this show, particularly to kids, or have kids watch when, you know, they're not going to relate to the host because the host, they don't think yeah. the host gets it. Now, at one point, wasn't Soul Train produced by Dick Clark Productions? No, no. Uh, I didn't think it was, but... No, I, but the interesting thing is, at one point in the 70s, in at the high point of the the where it looked like Soul Train would overtake, Soul Train syndicated ratings in its smaller markets would overtake, you know, Bandstand's national rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dick Clark convinced ABC to have a a a a a Soul Train ripoff, basically, uh, where he aped the concept, basically, and aired it on ABC. And uh, actually, there there may have been a lawsuit to uh, stop it, but ABC canceled it after like a yeah. month before Cornelius could file the suit. Um, and then uh, I believe there was, um, as as part of a, I guess, a, a mitigated settlement, because I don't think it was actually brought to case, um, but uh, uh, Dick Clark and Doug Cornelius co-produced something, but I don't remember what it was. Yeah, but, now, uh, yeah. At one point, at one point, yeah, it was it was pretty cutthroat. Now, what's interesting is though, when you watch Bandstand near the end, I always thought, you know, Dick Clark's here talking to Blomange or Scooty Felitti, and it just seemed like he was an old white dude talking to him. And I and always again, would watch, I would always watch Soul Train, and I would always think. When I would see Don Cornelius, man, that guy's down. I mean, he's just on yeah. it, you know? That old dude is just totally on top of stuff. And I never thought, I always that thought of Don Cornelius hey, as being ageless in a way that I never thought of Dick Clark being ageless. Well, I, and, and that's, that's kind of what I was talking about because at some point when you're a kid and especially, and I, I equate this also with MTV to a point where, when, where it seemed like MTV really started to fall off. And I'll get, and I'll figure, you'll figure this out in a minute. But when it seems like you're not being genuine on camera, people can tell, especially kids yeah. can tell it. Um, so the minute Dick Clark, the minute Dick Clark and Dunn Cornelius start to look like your dad, um, yeah. I, I think you get it just, there's a bit of a disconnect. The minute, the, the minute we went from VJs who were in radio or were DJs or who actually knew things about the bands they were interviewing to, you know, models and actor wannabes introducing videos, yeah. I think that was a bit of a disconnect in why videos on MTV fell off. Um, but, but it's interesting. There, there, and there was this really even, not even specifically like music shows like Bandstand or Soul Train or even MTV. There was, you know, there was one point in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, you would trip over variety shows. Yeah. You know, everybody had variety shows and they would book bands. I remember there was a Sid and Marty Croft Halloween thing with Kiss on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're thinking of the, um, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, but even, even things like the variety shows, uh, mm-hmm. went away. Well, I mean, you didn't have the Glenn Campbell Hour, you didn't have the Johnny Cash Show, you yeah. didn't have um, Sonny and Cher Show, you didn't have things like Shields and Yarnell or the Hudson Brothers that were variety shows with music. Um, or even the Smothers Brothers. Yeah, they, you didn't I have any of that, yeah. Quite a bit, so. Well, I mean, I guess that's my question, is because I can understand, I can see where 
if they had just died out now, like, I mean, Top of the Pops went forever. I mean, it, it, uh, it wasn't it, c- couldn't we say that it was Last Man Standing, basically? Yeah. Uh, of that generation of shows, yes. Okay. Because, I mean, it makes sense to me now because it used to be, like, Rob, what you were saying is that if you wanted to check out a, a live performance of a band, that was it. I mean, you didn't have any other options, really. Um, assuming that they actually performed live and didn't, you know, yeah. lip sync or something. But, uh, but now I can see where they wouldn't be around now because you can go on YouTube and there's, you know, depending the, the, the size of the venue and how many shows they have played, I'm sure someone could work out a, a, an equation by which you can determine how many live videos you will have on YouTube and how many of them will actually be watchable. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I, that's that I don't, I'm, I'm fascinated though. The answer of wh- where did all these variety shows and music shows go b- besides the Nirvana thing? Because it, it seems like even with Nirvana gone, I mean, if we're talking about where did the variety shows go, were there really a lot of kids watching the Johnny Cash show? Well, at the time, it was it, it changed a little because you had, you know, American Bandstand for the Kids, which is on like a Saturday morning. Right. But you had like the Johnny Cash show and the Glenn Campbell show, which were on like prime time. Or even, let us not forget, Lawrence Welk, God bless him, or Hee Haw, they were both prime time shows. So, um... And it's interesting you mentioned Hee Haw because Hee Haw was in, Hee Haw was in, if I remember correctly, Hee Haw was in just about the same number of markets that actually Soul Train was. And sometimes in some markets, they were actually aired one after the other. That's weird. I mean, if you live somewhere, by the way, where Hee Haw and Soul Train were run together, please let us know because there there has to be some sort of a prize for that. And you sat through both. There has to be. The thing is, too, is that the Lawrence Welk show was kind of a model in many ways of how to do this. They learned that, okay, people want to see live music, but they don't want all the schmaltz. Let's just put the kids on the TV and we'll, and we'll go, you know? Um, so there's always been this variety of music shows for various age groups and various types of genres. It just got either too expensive or just too much of, uh, either too expensive to make or too much of a hassle to distribute if you didn't have a network deal. And I think that's what killed it. Um, or I don't know, maybe, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way. Maybe it's not so much, you know, the bands performing now, maybe the music shows now are stuff like reinterpretations. Maybe it's like well, I mean, Lee or like idol or like X factor, which we all think are killing music, or at least I do. Yeah. And, and uh, maybe, maybe, maybe to the people who actually watch maybe. those shows, I mean, it's, but, it's, uh, it's yeah. almost the same thing as Bandstand. Well, I would argue that the Super Bowl halftime show was the best episode of Glee ever. But um, nice, thank you. Um, I would, I would. That that could be a way of looking at it, and that it's a repackaging of things. But then you have things like Austin City Limits, where you just show a band at a concert and you watch that. Oh you yeah. Know? Um, I think those are the close, are more closer to what we get now. You know, well, but um, but the other thing is as well is that if I want to go see a live music performance, I'll go to the Black Cab Sessions. You know, I'll go. Oh, yeah, to, that too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so so if you want that, you can get that elsewhere. I mean, it makes sense that if you want to see people reinterpret stuff, that you, you, I can I can almost buy the bandstand. Uh, div, I would say devolving into uh, American Idol and elsewhere. 
Um, yeah. you, know, you know, it's like Bandstand uh, took Star Search back behind the shed yeah. and had its way with it. And this is the bastard yeah. child, you know. Oh, that's the a other... weird, that's a weird Dick Clark yeah. and McMahon analogy. Well, the other weird thing. <laughs> The other weird thing was I apologize for that. Just just for me, because I, I don't know what that did to me. I don't. <laughs> the, the other weird thing too is that both American Bandstand and Soul Train, you could play any kind of record and people would dance to it, they'd rate it and stuff, right? Then we got in the nineties and that other beast of the nineties that came along, which was the whole sort of rave underground electronic music came. And that kind of killed the idea of a club. And I think that once the idea of, you know, a club died, as well as the combination of just music getting louder, um, kind of helped also kill off some of those shows. Because really, when you go to a club now, you don't really have anything there you want to put anybody on watching doing TV. It's just so bizarre and so weird and so strange that it's not really watchable anymore. Whereas before, it was a lot of kids just hanging out, having a good time, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, the kids are all dropping X and they're freaked out. We can't put that on TV. So I think that sort of – I'd watch it. I, well, yeah, duh. Sounds like the best um, cable access show ever. But I think as you got the sort of degeneration of, of, the, of the normal idea of a club, meaning either a discotheque or the sort of idea of like the Northern Soul Club where it's a bunch of people dancing to soul records and stuff, as you sort of got that devolving – into what the clubs are like now, you could the, something like American Bandstand or Soul Train, where you're watching people just going on TV dancing, wasn't going to hold people's attention, too. So I think there's also something to be said about that. Yeah, and I think I, I also think, and just to wrap this up, I also think it's very interesting that uh, there is there is a movement now to uh, get Top of the Pops back on BBC One as a regular yeah. series because it's airing now as a series of like one off specials or they bring it back for telethons or they'll even let yeah. Top Gear resurrect it every once in a while. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I think it's interesting that 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 there's a movement to get that back, uh, particularly in due in part to the reruns that uh, I believe two's running right now, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Um, because uh, I believe BBC Two is rerunning it, and they have uh, post-video wipe tape wipes. Um, they have started airing the shows in order week by week at, if they have complete episodes, which is interesting. So it's not just the edited best of highlights; it's the complete episodes, nice. which is yeah. neat. Um, unfortunately, I haven't there. They DBC has said they're going to put those online at some point after they've aired them, and I believe they are on iPlayer uh, with the catch-up service, but not all of them are on all at once, which BBC yeah. would like say they like to do, which will be which would also be interesting. But uh, well, yeah, I, I find it totally interesting that they might be bringing Top of the Pops back. That's a whole other beast of, of insane collecting. I do not need to to mess with. So thank <laughs> you for ruining my day. And then there's and then we should mention. There is also later if uh, Ovation will ever get around to playing the newer episodes, but um, but but there is a uh, later with Jules Holland, uh, which yeah. um, if you have a chance, some way you should watch that program because it is really 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 good. Except um, for Jules Holland, except for Jules Holland, but you know nobody watches the show for Jules. Um, but uh, that is our look at. Uh, Music on the telly and where it might have gone. Uh, it looks like it might have gone to the internet, it looks like. Um, but uh, stay tuned. Uh, there has to be somewhere MIA can show up and be shocking. Um, so now, 
Drumroll, please. The moment you've all been waiting for. Uh, it is Valentine's Day. It is coming up. It is almost upon us. And uh, uh, as we do, uh, we will have uh, we will do our recommendations this time out with uh, Valentine's and anti-Valentine's. And um, again, any of the stuff, any of the music we mentioned, Edda James, all of that, please go check it out uh, via the uh, uh, the Amazon link on the uh, front page of Need Coffee. Uh, and even if you don't, even if you disagree with any of our recommendations, shop for music anyway, because you can type in the search bar. Yeah, so you can actually, let me just jump in. You can actually sure. go to uh, save this link, folks, needcoffee.com slash Amazon takes you right to the front page of Amazon, and you don't even have to use the search bar. I mean, the search bar is there if you want to be convenient and whatnot, but if you just want to- or type. Uh, but if you just want to save that link and use it, if you're buying it from Amazon anyway, it doesn't matter if it's a 99 cent uh, MP3 or a, you know, a $999 television, it all helps pay for the bills. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's much appreciated. Um, so where do we want to start? Do we want to start with the love or the unlove? Oh man, I did a bunch of unlove. I don't know if I got any more new love. I know I'm all out of love, man. Yeah, well, since he took that obvious song title, I'll just uh, go with Moby and say, "What love?" Ah, yeah. Well, actually, that song that's on his new record too, that Heather Graham's in the video for, is also really sad, too. So, uh, so do we want to just start listing or? Oh yeah, sure. I I would just I would point out that since we I at least tried to avoid a lot of the obvious ones that we may have done in the past since we've done much longer Valentine's list. So I I would consider this to be my addendum to earlier lists. So just find this is is like the uh, D and D rules update. There you go. This go find just February of the last couple years we've been doing these and and there's uh (laughs) just a couple quick additions. Which, yeah. by the way, I, I, the person who did the D and D rules update reference that that explains a lot actually about Valentine's yeah. Day. God, yes, it does. <laughs> All right, so uh, who's going first? Um, Rob, you want to take it? I I will take you back to the most horrible Valentine's Day ever for me, which was 1993, of uh, which I was uh, spent in my basement apartment in Brooklyn, um, alternating. Love on the Rocks by Neil Diamond and House Who Is Now by the Smiths. Oh, Jesus. And uh, drinking a bottle of Cisco until my friend Lionel came over and said, Brother Man, you got to go out. <laughs> That's a good friend. Wait, which one did it? Um, Love on the Rocks or uh, House Who Is both. Now? He's just like, man, you fit rock bottom. Um, oh, oh uh, Rob, let me, let me just throw in that, that it reminds me of when I was listening to um, – uh, it it uh, it can't rain all the time off the crow, crow soundtrack oh, over and over again. Yes. Oh my god! Uh, and 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 had someone do the same thing to me over the phone. You've got to stop that. I know um, what you're doing. Stop it. <laughs> I would recommend most of the very first album by this mortal coil called "It'll End in Tears." <laughs> Perhaps the most joyful fun you will ever have being misery, being miserable because the lyrics are great. Uh, the singing on it's incredible. Every one of the people is in other bands that are great. So I highly recommend that as my all-time favorite album of misery in the last 20 years. <laughs> It'll end in tears by this Moto Coil. No, it's really, really. Just... No, no, no. I, cause, cause that's the one with, um, uh, Siren Song on it, right? Song of the Siren. Song of the Siren, yes. Oh, God, um, yeah. Oh, Jesus. FYT, yeah. It's just, ugh, it's awesome. Um, so I want to recommend that. Um, I also would recommend, um, your Silent Face by New Order, and then the last song on Low Life, which I think um, 
which is basically, oh, how I cannot stand the sight of you. I think that's pretty, pretty appropriate too. <laughs> um, I can't remember the name of it now because I'm old and forgetful, but, uh, and by the way, let me plug really quick because you had the anti Valentine's edition of juxtaposition recently, yeah. uh, which I believe will that be online by the time this, the archive it is online for the next two weeks. It aired on the 7th of, this, of February. It'll be available for two weeks. So you'll be able to get that for week of Valentine's Day and the week after. So there's a whole um, big list. The thing that Mr. was Rob. unique with the, the thing that was unique about this year's anti Valentine's Day show is that I wasn't actually going to do one and I had enough emails ahead of time to program the show that I didn't have to actually wing it a lot, which was great. Um, <laughs> so I do also want to recommend though a really great double feature of Kingdom of Rain by the the with Sinead O'Connor and The Last Day of Our Acquaintance by Sinead O'Connor. Both nicely miserable. Um and perhaps you like the reggae. If you like the reggae, there's UB40's Don't Break My Heart, which is, which was the B-side of I Got You Babe, which is a, a incredibly cheerful love song. So yeah. you get two bucks, two, two bangs for your buck there. And also um, Chris Kine. Exactly. And, uh, I, you know, I still think, I, I don't think we've talked about this, but I think the, uh, I think Come Undone and Ordinary World by Duran Duran are both pretty, pretty Sad, pretty good sad bastard songs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I'd never really would have thought of them in, in the qualification of a sad bastard song before. Yeah, and they did a lot of those in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, wedding album post comeback era. Well, having all your money go away will do that to you. Yeah. Um, and I also think that you don't love me anymore by Weird Al Yankovic is, is also a must for anti Valentine's Day. Uh, it's it's great. I just think it's it's a nice, funny sort of view at it. Um, again, any sort of breakup, hateful spite song by Nine Inch Nails, again, strongly recommended. They're all great. Um, yeah, and Flowers of Romance by Public Image Limited, uh, always good, good and solid, and sturdy like a rock. Um. Perhaps you've had a marriage that's gone all to hell in the last year or two. Well, there's Divorce by Tammy Wynette, which is just a classic. Spelled out D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Uh, awesome. I, I, I will I will throw out in there, since you're talking about it, uh, Regina Spector Divorce Song, which is kind of devastating. Yeah. yeah, I think we may have mentioned that before. Yeah. Which is also sad because she's got that such a great voice, and you hear that coming out of it. You know, you're like, really? <laughs> um but yeah, I'll second that as well. Um, and, and, and again, we mention it every year. We always talk about the Nirvana ver- version of uh, "Where Did You Sleep Last Night." Yes. But the woeful, the woeful, wholesome version of it is also pretty, pretty great. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and we're gonna go old school, but you know, really, um, a lot of the Patsy Cline stuff, pretty, pretty still. <clears throat> Oh, Patsy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Patsy Pride. Some of which uh, Willie Nelson wrote, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I always forget Willie Nelson wrote that. Um, there's a couple interesting things, too. Like, there's... I, and I, I was waiting for Widge to bring it up, but Lioness Bitch by Fishbone. You can't go wrong with that. Yes, which I just I just found a, a cover that Real Big Fish of that did uh, a few years back. Yeah, uh, the problem is that Real Big Fish did it. So. Oh, wow! 
<laughs> and Damn. at this point in the podcast, the host is going to sit back and drink a soda. Oh, no, God. No, no. Um, I lost my lucky ball and chain by They Might Be Giants. Yes. I, I also recommend that. Yep. Um, oh, even When Will You Die from the new album. Oh, yeah, you know. Um, there's also a really obscure, um, I think it's on three by the Violent Femmes. The same album's got nightmares on it. But there's a, there's a song on there called, uh, There's Nothing Worth Living For Tonight, which is just like the. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah, it's perhaps the saddest, like, with that voice singing that song is actually really, really sad. Um, and, uh, and, and bleak as well. Um, going back to maybe August of last year, uh, Heart in Your Heartbreak by Pains of Being Pure Heart or Misery by Big Troubles. Um, and who did that Miss Misery song? Was that, that wasn't Elliot Smith, was it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Anything by Elliot Smith, for the love of God. I mean, dude stabbed oh, himself yeah. in the stomach. I mean, <laughs> although in some states it is against the law to play an Elliot Smith record and a Morrissey record back to back. It's, it's verboten. So I um, think that summons demons, doesn't it? I believe I believe it's something an awful lot. No, of no, which I think that just means Dizzy's going to make a T-shirt out of his album cover in about twenty years. Nice. Uh, Closer by Joy Division too. I can't recommend a more bleak record, but also a more solid one. Um, you know, just it's just all around sad. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, so I'm gonna go ahead and and do what we should have done, which is the obvious one. Uh, Fiona Apple's entire catalog. Um, well, yeah. Well, see, I, I I didn't know like the Lindbergh baby. I have no idea where she is. So I yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I don't know what the name of her new album is that Sony's dicking us around about. But get that one too. Um, when there's it comes couple, out, and I there's a couple of great Tom Waits songs, and the names are escaping me on right now too. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, there's there's like oh god, don't you get me? We could spend an entire podcast talking about With Tom Waits, Nick Cave, and Tom. You know, make a mixtape. Side one is all the Tom Waits. Horrible broad songs. Inside two are all the Nick Cave's broken heart songs. Jesus then, Christ! The Have best of Nick Cave and the bad seats. Um, but don't um, be like the guy that called in last night and asked for Nick Cage in the bad seats because that'll get you beaten. Nick Cage. Uh, yeah. that, I think that that qualifies for a finishing move, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. You were saying after Fiona Apple. Um, I'm not going to cry, uh, from Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, which is on their new record, yes. uh, called Soul Time, which is yes. brilliant. Um, new the whole Queller's thing. got some sad stuff on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will go with, because I don't think I've mentioned this before. Uh, I'll go with You Got Me, uh, from The Roots and Erica Badu, uh, Ooh, from the, yeah. uh, Things Fall Apart record, which the yeah. Things Fall Apart record is actually also, almost all of it is, is, if will fit into this zone as well. Um, let's see. Oh, last year, did we talk about I Want You by Elvis Costello? I think we did. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I, I, I seem to remember I might have brought up the Fiona Apple cover, actually. So, once again, connections. Um, but, uh, uh well, if, if you're gathering your thoughts toughly, I can throw out a couple to yeah, help you out. Uh, I, I would, I would say because, uh, it's been too long since I mentioned them, uh, no one loves me and neither do I by them crooked vultures 
is uh, is is great. There we go. I was and waiting for that to that, pop up. Now, of course, and and most of that album <laughs> pretty much is is kind of dirty and nasty and 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 about love. Uh, and um, uh, I'll also throw out uh, the Infidels' "Love Like Semtex," which is fun. Um, and uh, and I'm surprised I'm the one that has to bring this up, but there's uh, "Bitch I Love You" by Black Joe Lewis. Um, yeah. Which, which really is uh, actually, I a love song for our you. times. <laughs> I was actually leaving that for you. Oh, That's thank you, idea. thank you. Um, so there is I that. I at a wedding once. Nice. Um, mine. So somebody wanted that on their yeah. Oh Jesus Christ! Uh, also, there's there... pretty much there's pretty much the whole of the new Kate Bush record, which is called Fifty Words for Snow, which yeah. is a really heartbreaking album. Um, oh God! Yeah, melting snowmen and and Elton John. It's very weird. But melting, they're melting Elton John. That was about time. Ah, uh, well, that's the House of Wax sequel I didn't want. <laughs> um, but uh, what else? Go ahead, Wedge. Oh, uh, uh, there's a song, a song by a band called The Buffalo. I believe it's called called True Love, which is fun. Uh, you know the kind that doesn't work. Uh, that's great. Um, also, uh, I, I probably mention this every year, but I, I must say, uh, the mountain goats, uh, no children, which yep. is, uh, ridiculous. And, uh, it doesn't have to be beautiful by slow club. Um, okay. it's a great song. And because Rob, uh, threw out the a weird owl, I will go with, uh, one more minute by weird owl. Yes, that's also good. Yes. It's, uh, because, uh, you know, once, once the weird owl, uh, gauntlet has been thrown, it must be answered. Uh, there's also chow by lush. Uh, which is great. Uh, uh caring is real... creepy from the shins. Yeah, then there's, um, uh, you made me realize by My Bloody Valentine, which is just all kinds of wrong. Uh, and actually, Craig Finn has a new record out from The Hold Steady. And oh, there's yeah. A, there's, uh, the last song on the, the second song on it and like the last song on it. Uh, the titles are completely escaping me now, but they're, they're both pretty, uh, pretty messed up. And, um, any version whatsoever of Lover I Don't Have to Love is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, we'd be remiss if we did not mention, um, anything on the Cure Disintegration or, uh, pornography, because they're both pretty god darn bleak. And, um, we also would probably behoove us to, um, good word. We already mentioned the Nice Nails, so never mind. Um, yeah. Well, the Smiths. We briefly mentioned Morrissey, but uh, I don't know. Girlfriend in a coma or Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now, which one would probably fit better? Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Sophie's and Choice. I know, I, I know <laughs> we talk about, I know everyone talks about um, Tainted Love, but actually Say Hello, Wave Goodbye by Soft Cell is actually. Oh, free. yeah. Yeah. And uh, Never Never by The Assembly is another one. Actually, uh, the Assembly again, was for yeah. Again, I'll throw out connections. Soft Cell did Hello, Goodbye, and Solid Gold. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Tuffley still has the, the Betamax of that. Uh, I still have it, too. So, um, uh, but I, I, uh, I think it was a taped-over copy of Popeye, but there you go. There's also You Little Thief by Fertile Sharky, and then the other B-side of it, which was um, A Good Heart. And it was interesting because one of them was written by uh, Maria McKee and the other one was written by Tebow Burnett and they, they they were each dating and they broke up and they wrote the, the songs about each other and Virgil Sharkey ended up singing them, which I thought was interesting. What and was then, the song? What was the song that uh, Nick Cave and Kylie Minogue did where in the video and this is after they broke up where he actually killed her? 
Oh, that was and, off of Murder yeah. Ballads. That was um, yeah. was that well, Murder Wild... Ballads? Is a whole other record. Rose. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Rose. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Get Over You by The Undertones. Also, there's a whole bunch of songs by the Buzzcocks. If I'm ever falling in love, to What Do I Get? To um, Oh man, there's, there's a whole bunch of Buzzcock ones, but I'm completely losing my train of thought on. Um, there's one called Romance as well. And also, I would like to throw in off the new Amy Winehouse one, the uh, uh, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, which Amy Winehouse sings on, on, on Linus. It's just really sad. Yeah. Uh, um, I will throw out uh, which one that I'm I'm surprised our uh, our fellow co-host Mr. Mr. Walls didn't think of uh Real Real from uh Sleigh Bells. Yeah. Uh yeah, but see my problem is with Sleigh Bells, I I want to punch things so much in glee that I really don't think of love or anti-love. <laughs> yeah. Really, I I I just want to to punch things. And, and by the way, that was an excuse for me to mention that the album's going to be out in 2 weeks. I know and I can't fucking wait. I am <laughs> I have warned. Spotify has called and said you are wearing out our copy of Comeback Kid. Stop fucking playing it, asshole. Oh, sorry. Shut up, Rob. I tried. It was Comedy Garden. God, oh, shit. Oh my God. Toughly take the wheel. Okay. I only had to share it with one person, which. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I do want to flip it a little bit and say that At Last by Etta James is just a mighty fine Valentine's Day song, as is uh, You'll Never Find by Mr. Lou Rawls. Yeah. You cannot go wrong with either of those fine songs. Um, so here's a debate. Uh, Got to give it up part two or let's get it on from Marvin. Sexual healing. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I think Got to Give It Up is more of a party record. Okay. You can play that at a party. Uh, let's get it on. I was the being stealthy. Let's get it on. I was thinking, I, I was thinking so stealth. much. Um, although I have to say, the Kate Bush version of Sexual Healing is top notch. See, I always thought you know, Sexual Healing is more alone time. <laughs> now play the big room. Play the big room. Man, a lot of <laughs> is that a euphemism, Rob? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, no. That was our weekend justice moment. There it was. Oh um, God, leave it alone. <laughs> that moment was dedicated to Scott C. Here on Soundboard. Um, yeah, I'm trying to now. I'm trying to think of all the uh, the good, the good, nice love songs people. Oh, is about. this love, Bob Marley? Yeah, or one love too. Is yeah. also very good. Uh, let's see. Well, waiting in vain. Yeah. Well, I uh, I don't want actually to wonder if you know, love, what yeah. may be to me the prettiest, most under the radar love song ever is Adamant's "Wonderful." I would agree with that. It's just really, really good. And despite as much as we knock them, "Yellow" by Coldplay is still an incredibly beautiful song. So okay, <laughs> stun the podcast for schmaltziness. So. Well, there you go, Chris Martin. You've been mentioned in almost the same area as uh, them crooked vultures on this program. And when the hell will that happen? And two live crew. And two live crew. So I believe on that bombshell, uh, we should we should we should run run off the stage now. Something in the uh, way by Nirvana. 
<laughs> okay, done. Uh, we should run off the stage now before. Uh, well, that was a good comeback, though. Good comeback, bringing back the Nirvana. Yeah. Um, that, I believe, will do it for this edition of the Soundboard. Uh, join us next time, uh, probably next month, and we'll probably pretend the Grammys happen. Uh, until then, this is Jam Tuffley for Widget Walls and uh, Rob Levy. Uh, have a good evening and enjoy the love. Or enjoy the hate, whichever one comes first. Whatever you feel. You got it. It'll be over with all soon, I promise. Yep. And we're stopping. Brilliant!